right, folks, welcome back to another episode of the Boombastic Cast. Woo! Woo! We got the leaves turning orange. And orange, you're glad you showed up for the Boombastic Cast today, my friends. We have a superb guest with us this evening. Okay? All right. We got some good stuff going for you. The man behind the hidden. A Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge. Renegades. One of my favorite episodes of Tales from the Crypt. You know what I mean? Arachnid. That's good times. Um, that's a good, that's a good time. All right. Uh, the gentleman's been all over. He's done. He edited the burning for crying out loud, dude. Another hidden gem in the horror masterpiece world. Alone in the Dark, this gentleman's first film, uh, epically iconic is a phrase they like to use. Uh, the cast on it is fucking bananas when you think about it. Uh, and it's just great, almost psychological horror, you know. Um, but did I mention the man, the myth, the legend? Jack Shoulder, ladies and gentlemen. Whoo! Uh, at the Boombastic cast, we love to sit down with directors that made some films that we really appreciate, influenced us. We just love, you know what I mean? Me and the Hawkman are both in the film world, as a lot of you out there listening may know. And uh, the film world comes when you're influenced by other people that make good film. You know what I mean? Mr. Jack Shoulder is one of those folks. So it's an absolute pleasure to have him on the show today. Hey, how you doing? Hey, Jack, how you doing? All right. All right. So here we are. Here we is. Here we are. Good to see you. Yeah, nice to see you. I'm Matt, and that is Alexander, my co-host over here. Okay. We're from uh, the Boston of Massachusetts area. Yes, which part of Boston? I'm uh, in Whitman, the South Shore, and he's more north up in Andover. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, we got we got Massachusetts covered. He's got the south side, I got the north side. Yes. <laughs> no, no so one you're, you're a Southie? Oh, yeah. Well, we're close enough to be called South. We're like 20 minutes away from... Southie, yeah, but we're Southie, yeah. Yeah, I love Boston. Great city. It's got a great vibe to it. It's one of those big cities, even though it's not. It's not quite L.A. or New York, but I think it's in the next, uh, the next rung. Oh yeah, it's, I mean, it's a fantastic, beautiful city. Uh, great food, a lot of culture. Yeah, uh, I, I always enjoy going up there. I like it. We got our yeah. house. We got our town. Charlestown, bank robbers, and all our Whitey Bulger, all our glorious yeah. history. Yeah. Hey, I'll take it. I'll take a, a little rough a little rough history of it's always fun, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I'm in Asheville, North Carolina now, so. How do you like it over different. there? Uh, well, you know, um, it, it's a little bit different than the, the Northeast living in the South. I've never really been here. Yeah. Um, you know, it's just uh, like, uh, you know, I don't know about Boston, but, uh, you know, New York, uh, you know, uh, people say what's on their mind, you know. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of times they'll, uh, you know, tell you to fuck off, you know, pretty easily. I can imagine yeah. Boston is the same way. Yeah. Uh, down, down here, instead of saying fuck off, they get nicer. But they really mean fuck off. You know. <laughs> they have a, like a saying here called "Bless your heart." Yes, 
uh, which which means like uh, I, I feel sorry for you, you know. <laughs> but, like yeah, that. he's a cripple, bless his heart, or you know, he's an asshole, bless his heart. You know? So anyway, but it's uh, you know, I live up in the mountains, so it's really beautiful. How long are you living over there? Uh, about six, seventeen years, I think. It's it's kind of hard to believe. I mean, I've I've, I've lived here. Longer than I lived in New York. I lived in New York for 14 years, 14, 15 years. And then I lived in L.A. for, I don't know, 20-some years. So uh, it's hard to believe I've been living down here for that long. Um, it took a little getting used to. And, uh, you know, it's, the thing is you can always, uh, you know, get on a plane or get in your car and drive up to New York. My wife's family is from there. We have a lot of friends there. So, you know, we, yeah. we go up. The hub. So, so shall we? Uh, we shall in? gather. We shall get in. All right, everybody, ready? Okay. okay. We already did a little introduction before here, uh, before we brought you in. So you you've already been introduced, and uh, we usually start at you know kind of the beginning of uh, you know the career, if you will. And I know that you know you got a little start. You said I've heard you say before you know, film school came in and even really before courses were in colleges on film. So it was just yeah. kind of, uh, you know, how, how kind of with, with, without those things, how did you kind of get your start? I know we do films over here as well. You know, we came up week starting on the weekends with family and friends and stuff. Was it just kind of like that in the beginning or a little more advanced? Well, I mean, I, um, I sort of got into, you know, I'm not one of these people who was, uh, you know, doing eight millimeter films when they were, you know, six years old, you know, like, like Spielberg or a lot, a lot of people. Um, I really, I, I really sort of got interested in, in film, like, uh, you know, toward the end of my college career, you know, before that I'd want, you know, I thought I wanted to be a writer and before that a musician. So, but, uh, you know, writing is, telling stories mm-hmm. and you know, I studied English literature, which was a, a good background and music was a good background for, for film. Yeah. You know, film, film takes, is like music. It, it takes place in time, you know, and people who most of the good editors I know and know about uh, have some kind of musical background. So, you know, it works like music and both, yeah. you know, and, and the, like the, the measure to measure sense, but also mm-hmm. in the wider sense, you know, like a song, a symphony or whatever, you know, has a structure. Yeah. It goes, you know, it starts and it goes and then, it, you know, and it comes to a conclusion. And, you know, even though music is classical music, you know, for the most part is kind of abstract. It does tell a story and it gets to you emotionally, um, you know, and that's, you know, that was always the, the, the appeal for me. So, so by the time I got interested in film, uh, you know, I had, I had these other things going for me. Uh, 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 I had a girlfriend who was really interested in film, started watching a lot of movies and I thought, Hey, um, it'd be really cool to, to make these, to make movies. Cause I would watch these movies and I would, you know, like all of us who love movies, you, you know, you walk out of the movie theater and you feel uplifted or, you know, 
inspired. Something, you know. Yeah. Uh, you feel different, better, you know. Yeah. Uh, and so I thought it would be good to be able to make other people feel that way for something that I did. Um, so um, I just started doing it, you know. Um, uh, at, at, I went to this place called Antioch College. It's a very liberal, liberal arts uh, school, college, and they had a cooperative education program. So everybody, you know, for for half the year, they would take a job, you know. And, and a few of them had worked in, had had some kind of film jobs. And I actually got a, got a film job sort of doing some very rudimentary editing work for an anthropologist, just basically kind of assembling film, but I kind of learned how to use the editing equipment and what happens in the film lab and all that kind of stuff. Uh, um, and there was another student who had spent a year at the London School of Film Techniques, so he he was my cameraman. And so, you know, we just started doing stuff. And, uh, you know, we didn't really know what we were doing, uh, but we did it anyway, you know. And, and it was a lot harder to do than, than now. I mean, now you can make a film on your iPhone. Right. Uh, and, and also, it doesn't cost anything. It's free. Right. Uh, uh, you know, I mean, we had to get 16 millimeter film, uh, you know, to shoot sound, you had to rent a very expensive camera, mm-hmm. um, and a, you know, expensive tape recorder that could, uh, sync up together. And, uh, you know, then there were the lab costs, and, you know, the 16 millimeter goes through the camera 36 feet a minute. So, you know, every minute, 36 feet of film you know so you don't get to just keep rolling just keep rolling no no no. cut cut stop (laughs) you know uh so you know it was it was a different different kind of thing but uh you know i i I started doing it and i learned that and and i i made four short films while i was in college i mean some of them weren't that short i mean First one was, was, was two minutes, but the next one was like 15 minutes and, and the next couple were, you know, over, over 20, like 20, 25 minutes long. Yeah. And I didn't know what I was doing at that point. Then I moved to New York and I, uh, hooked up with an alum from my college and I got a job doing editing for him. And so I, I kind of learned how to, how to do it. Again, I was kind of self-taught because usually the way that if you wanted to become an editor or a cameraman or anything else, you would start as an apprentice or, you know, camera, you'd start as a loader, you know, mm-hmm. and you'd work with these people and they'd kind of teach you stuff and you'd, you'd just be around and you'd pick stuff up and gradually you'd move up to assistant and, you know, and then if you were lucky, you'd move up to editor or cameraman operator and, you know, uh, but I, I, I just, uh, I never worked with anybody that, that, that knew more than I did. Um, you know, so I, I was the editor, so I just kind of had to figure it out. But I, I, I kind of had this, um, I just had a real, like, instinct for editing. So I, I kind of knew when it was right. I didn't necessarily know how to get there right away, but I would cut it together and I'd look at it and I'd say, ah, and I'd fiddle around until it felt right, you know. So, uh, you know, that's kind of how I, how I learned, uh, you know, and, 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 you know, gradually I, you know, I worked on some, some bigger stuff and then I could hire an assistant and usually the assistant 
technically knew, knew more than I did. You know, you know, gradually sort of caught up, you know, and I caught up, got pretty adept at it. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, I was cutting, I was watching like, you know, this was in the early 70s or in the 70s, and, um, you know, there were like six Bible art houses in, in New York that would play uh, old films, foreign films, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, they'd have a Hitchcock festival, they'd have a Buster Keaton festival, um, and I'd just go see everything that was playing. So, you know, I watched a lot, a lot of movies. And, you know, it just kind of gets into your, into your bones. You know, it's kind of like, I don't think you go to school to be a rap artist, you know, right. but, but, but if you want to be a rap artist, you're listening to it like everybody's rapping. Right. And then you start to develop, you start copying people and then you start to develop your own stuff. And, you know, it's not like you went to school for it. You just, you learn, you know, you just, that's becomes your life. So, yeah. and I was cutting trailers for New Line Cinema. And so, you know, I got to basically take a feature film and cut it down to two and a half minutes. And so, you know, I learned a lot by, you know, it's basically like, you know, taking a, a grandfather clock apart, putting it together as a wristwatch. Right. So, you know, you learn a lot about clocks if you do that. So that was kind of yes, what I, I cut, did. Yeah, cutting and, you know, a short film my, out of a feature. Yeah. Making yeah, a short film. Well, a very short film. Yeah. Getting very short. Well, and also, and also kind of saying, you know, what is it that's going to attract an audience? You know, that's another part of doing a, 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 a trail. Yeah. So, um, you know, cause I, you know, I didn't really want to be a hard film director, but, uh, you know, I, I did want people to see my films. You know, I didn't want to make, make films that, that, that people just showed, you know, in, in basements and stuff, you know, yeah. I wanted to have films that people would, would go out and see. So, uh, you know, I did have a, a sense of, of, you know, what played for audiences. So, you know, you could put a certain amount of that in there, um, uh, you know, to, to, to please your audience. I mean, not to necessarily pander to them, but, but, but at least, you know, give them some, some stuff that they want. So, you know, so that was my background. Now, you said New Line there, I believe, Alone in the Dark, which is a masterpiece that uh, was just re-released, I think, on Shout Factory, re-released it. Um, I love that film. I hunted that film down. Scream Factory. Which one? Scream Factory. Scream Factory. All right, my apologies. Yeah. Uh, I've seen a a beautiful, it's a beautiful edition with poster and the whole whole nine looks great. Uh, Anybody out there who hasn't seen it, definitely go check that out. Um, yeah, yeah. I don't. Uh, before that, you had uh, a short called um, what was it? The the last uh, the garden party. The garden party the there. Garden. Now that that, that's, that's that's a, actually on yeah, it's that's actually on, it? on 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 YouTube. You can watch it on on YouTube, and it's I mean it's completely different from all my other films. You know, it's a coming of age story about a young girl. Uh, you know, just at the end of World War Two and. You know, it's, it's, it, you know, nobody gets, well, actually, actually, there is a, there is a dead body in it, but it's, you know, it's not like, it's not like a horror film. You know, yeah. it's sort of a, a young girl sort of learns what life is all about, but it's, it's really good, 
I mean, it's the first film I did that I thought was really, um, that I kind of moved into another, another territory. My, my other films were sort of more about me, yeah. you know, uh, whereas this was something that was, you know, wasn't out of my personal experience, but, um, you know, that I was able to sort of take, it, it was based on a, on a well-known short story by Catherine Mansfield, great. Uh, early 20th century writer. So, you know, um, but, uh, yeah. So you were asking how that, that one came about. It's got a great, for a first, it's like a first short kind of like a first real attempt at the short. It's got a great cast for it. How, how'd that come about with snagging up those people, you know? Well, um, I had a, a, a friend, had a group of friends and, and, and they had a house up in, up uh, around Sugarbush in in Vermont, and, and and one of my friends uh, started a bakery, and the bakery was pretty successful. And he wanted to make movies, and so we he he scraped together some money, and we made a you know a very low budget uh, short called Cats and Dogs. That, that I was actually going to put that up on on YouTube as well, but sort of decided against it. It. Yeah. it uh, I, I mean, it was, it was basically like the story of the break of breakup between me and a girlfriend of mine, you know. Yeah. And it was, it was, you know, it it was very personal, but it, you know, it was kind of flawed. Um, but he wanted to do another one, and I, I had always wanted to make a film out of this short story called The Garden Party. So I wrote the script, and my friend, the baker, uh, who was a very kind of entrepreneurial guy uh, uh, met some people who had, who wanted to get into the film business, who had a lot of money. And um, he talked them into investing. They they put 25, gave us $25,000, which is a lot of money at that time for for short. And um, uh, his name is Paul Gurian. And eventually he he moved to Hollywood and he, he produced a film called Cutter's Cutter's Way, I think, that's kind yes. of a cult favorite, and you know, worked, you know, did did very well as a producer. Um, uh, but uh, so yeah, so we, um, I mean, we managed to get Beatrice Strait, who was you know like a great Hollywood actress, uh, a Broadway actress. Yeah. Uh, excuse me. She actually ended up winning an Academy Award for Network. Uh, she had one. She was in two scenes. There was like one little scene, and then there was one big scene where she's married to William Holden, and, and he's been cheating on her. And it's a scene where she really lets him have it. And she yeah. she got an Academy Award for it. I mean, she's an amazing actress, Great. you know. Yeah, um, also in Poltergeist. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I've I, I, I've had you know I've been fortunate to have worked with a lot of really fantastic actors. You know. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, I'm sure we'll get into that. Yeah. At some point, but yeah. So uh, I don't know. You know, we uh, we we weren't really paying much money, but I guess she kind of liked the role. Um, person who played the young girl, who was the the lead, was um, uh, her name oh, is Maya Danziger, and she yeah. had just she had just played uh, Juliet in the Shakespeare in the Park. So she or um, or at the Public Theater, she was like really on the rise, but I, she. She just, I don't think that her, you know, she was that, 
that interested in in her acting career. But you know, she's wonderful. I had Mark Medcalf, who was in um, had a big big role in uh, uh, Animal House. Animal House. Animal thank House, you. Yeah. yeah. So uh, yeah. So I mean, we 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 managed to get a, a really good cast for you know basically scale. Um, yeah. And uh, you know, had a a good, very talented director of photography, you know, he was a guy who was basically working as a gaffer, you know, but who was ready to move up, and this was like a chance for him to do his, his thing, but, uh, you know, I'd never worked with anybody of that caliber before, and uh, so, uh, you know, I had I had a good a good crew, you know, and, uh, you know, a bunch of friends did other stuff, uh, producer's girlfriend did the costume, she did a great job. Uh, you know, stuff, stuff like that. And, you know, uh, it ended up, uh, uh, PBS picked it up and ran it as a special and it won a bunch of awards. And, and, uh, you know, uh, I, I think Bob Shea was impressed by it, you know, to the point where he would consider me to direct the movie for his company, even though, I mean, we, you know, we were best friends. So he, yeah. he knew me very well and, and, uh, you know, he also knew that I was a really good editor, so. Yeah. Before we get into some more of the directorials, I wanted to, uh, quite, you know, you brought up editing real quick. Now, you edited The Burning, which is an right. uh, underground masterpiece of horror filmmaking out there. How'd that come about? You get involved with that? that was, I think, the first Weinstein Brothers film, kind of unofficial. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Uh, well, not unofficial, officially. That was their first yeah, film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, the Weinstein were... Bro logo, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they well, they were um, they were concert promoters. You know, uh, they were they were based out of uh, um, um, Buffalo. Mm. You know, they I think both of them had gone to you know uh, uh, Buff uh, University of New York at Buffalo. Uh, yeah. uh, then they were kind of concert promoters, and they decided they want to make a feature. F- feature film so they basically uh they came up with an incredibly original idea for a horror film which is a bunch of kids in a summer camp and there's a maniac out in the woods who's trying to kill them so you know no one had ever thought of that one before yeah so, fisher stevens though that's that was the kick the kick well well no they had uh, fisher stevens they had uh um uh uh, uh um Guy from Seinfeld, uh, Jason Alexander. Jason Alexander. Jason Alexander, yes. And and they had um, uh, who was the girl? They had a girl Leah, who ended up Leah getting... Aries. Leah no, Ayers? Not, uh, not her. No, Leah Ayers. No. Yes. Uh, um, they had. Uh, why am I blanking on her name? She got an Academy Award. Uh, not Shelley Bruce. No. Um, hmm. I'll tell you in a second. Um, oh, Carrick? Carrick Glenn? No, 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 no. No, 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 no. no. Uh, Caroline Houlihan? Holly Hunter? Holly Hunter. Holly Hunter was in there? Yeah, she was in there. Yeah, she was She was in there. And... Um, yeah, I mean, they had that, like, the English director who had, he, I don't know why they hired him, but he's he a really nice guy. Uh, yeah. He never directed a feature. He, um, 
he, he was very into what he called motor car racing. Okay. He liked to do motor car racing films, yeah. you know, <laughs> Formula One stuff. And, yeah. Uh, uh, he had a very good director of photography that I think, you know, had, had a lot to do with it. And, and Tom Savini was, yes. was a special effects guy. And basically, um, Harvey didn't treat, well, but neither of them treated, uh, Tony Malum, the, the, the director, neither of them treated him with a lot of respect that, you know, when there was a question, they'd look over to, to Savini, you yeah. know, uh, and, uh, yeah. Um, uh, so I, uh, you know, I, I wrote Alone in the Dark, uh, in a new line, Newland was a film distribution company. Their whole thing was, they started out because film was just starting to become popular in colleges. Yeah. You know, uh, when I graduated from college, which is around the time that, you know, a little after that I was, was when I met Bob Shea, uh, you know, there was like NYU and UCLA and USC and, you know, that was kind of it. There, you know, nobody had, there was no such thing as film studies. And all of a sudden in the 70s, that all started coming in. And, uh, and so New Line was the idea to, to, uh, um, distribute films to colleges, you know. So they'd have to get the rights to films. They didn't have much money. Um, yeah. And, um, uh, you know, they almost went out of business a half a dozen times and then some movie would, would come along and save them. Uh, you know, they, they, they get reefer madness or yeah. they get sympathy for the devil you know, or they get, uh, you know, some, something else would sort of come along and kind of save them. And at a certain point, you know, they, they managed to, to survive and grow. Uh, and then, um, I used to, I used to hang out with, with Bob a lot. I mean, you know, we have dinner, you know, once or twice a week, you know, he'd invite me over, always never paid for anything. You know, he was sort of like, like a big brother to me in, in both the good sense and the bad sense, you know? Uh, yeah. uh, and, uh, uh, I went to see, uh, Friday the 13th with him, you know, and he was like knocked out, like, wow, you know, they made this film for like, you know, 50 cents and it's, making a ton of money. And so, you know, we were, we were all, all sitting around him and his sales guy as after work, you know, passing around the joint. And, uh, uh, and one of the guys said that, you know, we should make one, a, a low budget horror film. You know, we, we know that market really, really well, you know, cause they were the quote, the youth market. Mm-hmm. And we should, uh, we should make a low budget horror movie and we can make a lot of money. So, I thought about it. I came up with this idea, which is basically alone in the dark. Um, you know, a uh, group of maniac, you know, homicidal maniacs in a, in a, a, a kind of an avant-garde uh, mental institution with all electronic security, no bars. Uh, there's a blackout. They waltz out and, and basically the whole world's going crazy and they just blend in. Uh, and and that, so. I had so a question I, about that. Yeah. Was that based off of the Reagan administration? Because wasn't there a time during the Reagan administration when they shut down a lot of mental hospitals and they, a lot of patients went into the streets? Well, that that wasn't really what I was. Um, that wasn't really what I was. I know that they broke out. On. Yeah. Uh, uh, there were basically two things. One was yeah. there was a blackout in New York 
a few years earlier, I think in 78 or something. And basically the entire island of Manhattan went dark. There was no electricity. Entire island of Manhattan. No electricity. Uh, and yeah, and, uh, Things just started going crazy. You know, there was looting, rioting, uh, you know, people were like, you know, breaking into businesses and stuff like that. It was like the whole world went, went crazy. And it, for, for 24 hours, there was no electricity. And it took basically on a rolling basis three days before all the electricity came back. I actually know a girl talking about a horror story. I knew a girl who was in an elevator when the blackout happened. Really? Oh. was trapped in an elevator for a day and a half. Wow. Yeah. Holy you shit. Can imagine. Imagine that. Uh, but um, so there was that, and and, and then there was also a, a British psychiatrist by the name of R. D. Lang, who who had sort of rethought um, the way uh, mental patients were treated, and um, he had this sort of revolutionary thing where, and I'm I'm I'm. Grossly oversimplifying this, but to me it all sounded very funny because it was basically like, um, it was his mental institution was like a country club, you know. And if you said, I've got little green men who are following me around, he would say, Oh, yeah, I, I see him. Yeah, that guy right, right, that little green guy over there, you know. And, 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 and his feeling was like the world was crazy. And these were just people who had adopted to, adapted to a crazy world. So, so I thought that was kind of funny. Yeah. Uh, and, um, um, so those were the two, things that went into the stew and um uh so i i i pitched them the story originally it was supposed to take place in manhattan it was supposed to be uh that these guys escaped from mental hospital and they they terrorized uh um little italy and and the mafia decided to round them up so uh but, but New Line didn't want to shoot in New York City. It was going to be too expensive. The unions were going to come in, you know, and they didn't want to deal with any of that stuff. So they, and they want the mafia in there. So it was set more in the suburbs. Yeah. And, uh. Sorry about that. Well, we had local. Yeah. Um, anyway, so, so I got hired to, uh, to, to edit the burning. And, um, and so that was, um, you know, I I was never really a horror film fan. You know, I yeah, I, I watch horror films just like I watched everything. You know, and and when I was a kid, you know, I used to watch the creature features on you know on TV and stuff like that. Uh, but but I never really um, it was never a, a, a focus of mine. So by editing the film, I, I learned a lot about how how it works. You know, how you build up suspense. Yeah. I mean, there's a sequence in there where where uh, the kids go on a rafting trip. Yeah. Uh, and it's like, uh, uh, you know, something bad's going to happen. You know, it's not like it's a horror film. They're going to go on a rafting trip and they're just going to go rafting and come back. And Hey, we had a great time. You know, no, something bad's got to happen. You know? <laughs> so, uh, you know, so they're rafting, you know, they're, they're, they're paddling away, having a good time. And, and then they, they notice this, uh, canoe just like sitting in the water. So of course it's like, hey, let's see what's in the canoe. 
you know. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, and so, you know, it's our film. So everybody in the theater knows there's something bad in the canoe. Yeah. Uh, let's, let's go, let's go, you know, and they're all like shouting and paddling toward the canoe. And then, you know, they, they get to the canoe and the, the guy jumps up. You know, with this pit, you know, his, his weapon of choice was these garden shears. Yeah. And he, you know, ch- starts chopping them up. Yeah. So, um, so, uh, I edited it together and, you know, Tony said, oh, it looks pretty good. And Harvey said, it's too short. And I said, well, okay, uh, let me, let me, let me go through, you know, uh, and make it, you know, see if I can make it longer. So I made it longer. We screened again. Harvey says, it's too short. Still too short. I said, well, I used, you know, all the good stuff. He said, well, use everything. So I went back, uh, you know, because they, they'd done a whole lot of different shots. But, you know, some of them, it felt like it was more far away. So it was, anyway, I took every usable thing and put it in. And basically, you know, what I learned was, with suspense, the longer you drag it out, the better it is. You know, you don't want to have get it over too too quickly. So there's you know there's suspense and there's surprise, right? Uh, you know Hitchcock. You know about what what Hitchcock said that the difference is. It's yeah. About the bomb under the table. Yep. Right. So, so just uh, f- for your fans who may not know, so Hitchcock says surprise. Two people are having lunch. A bomb explodes under the table. That's surprise. Suspense. Somebody puts a bomb under the table. Two people sit down to have lunch. That's the difference. So I really learned about that, you know, and, and, and also like, uh, there's a, a, a gag where, where they, uh, the guy chops off, you know, somebody goes, ah, you know, puts his hand out and he chops off. Yeah. So, so Tom had made this thing it was like a foam hand. It basically looked like one of those stupid things people have in a football game. You know, it, it looked like a piece of shit. It didn't, you know, it wasn't like beautifully sculpted. It was a foam. It kind of generally resembled the hand, you know. And they just had a close-up of the clippers, like, clipping it. And, and when they clipped, the fingers, the tips of the fingers just kind of flew off. And if you looked at it, it looked really bad. But if you cut it in, just like five frames. Yeah. It was like, oh my god! Yeah. <laughs> it was six frames, not quite, but if five frames, it was like, oh my god! You know, uh, you know, and I, I like cut it in. And it's like, wow, <laughs> this is really, you know, I mean, because you don't have time to like look and see it's made out of fun, you know. But it's, you know, it's the same color as the person's hand, yeah. and you just see the the thing come in and, you know, and, and it's like, wow, that's kind of interesting how that all works. And I had actually seen this stuff because I, you know, I'd edited trailers for like Sonny Chiba movies, you know, where they had all those, those, those kind of things where, uh, you know, before they had all these CGI stuff and, you know, all, all this high tech stuff, you know, basically they, they take three or four shots and cut them together quickly and it would look like something happened that, that, that never really happened. So I went back and I rewrote the script for Alone in the Dark to make it scarier. Uh, you know, put in some some stuff uh, just just to create some some good scares and also you know constructed some other things to build the scares a lot better. Yeah. And for one reason or another, they were able to raise the money. I don't know whether because it was better or because it was just the timing was better. But anyway, so. 
uh, I got to do my first feature. Now, wasn't that the first feature that uh, New Line made as a production company? Is that true? That uh, well, it was. It was actually technically it was the second, but the first one, which is called Stunts, was a co-production. Okay. This was the first one that they did on their own. It was a new, you know, it was a New Line film. Um, I mean, it, it was in association with other people, you know, who had put up. Uh, a lot of the funding, but, but this was the first one that was really their, their film that they, that, that they did. And, you know, then the second one was Elm Street. So, you know, yeah. that, that really got things rolling. Yeah. Bobby Shea's empire. Now you, you yeah. said, you, when did you first meet Bobby Shea? I, I met him in 1969. His company was about a year old. Um, uh, actually, actually the guy who was, who I, who I went to school with, who was my, my cameraman was dating this girl who was working as a temp secretary for his company. So they had the, they had a room in, in, in lower, lower Broadway, uh, above a bar. Uh, and they had, uh, you know, three other people working there and, uh, you know, um, they needed, uh, I was hoping that he would. Uh, my friend said you should take your films over there. Maybe he'll he'll distribute your shorts. So I called him up and he, he said, "Okay, drop them off." I dropped them off. Uh, he called me a few weeks later. He said, well, "Why don't you come by?" So I came by. He said, "Listen, you know, I'm sorry. Uh, you know, I liked your films, but uh, we really can't use any shorts now." And um, I said, "Well, okay." And as I was getting up to leave, he said, uh, "By the way, do you know anybody who who could cut a trailer?" And I said, "Yeah, me." So, you know, I never cut a trailer, but, you know, I'd seen them, so I, I knew how to edit enough that I figured I could do it. And so he said, okay. And, um, you know, he, we, uh, you know, at that point, an editing room, you know, nobody owned the editing equipment. You know, you need a moviola or, or a steam bag or a cam, and, you know, it was expensive, and you had all this stuff. So, you know, everybody rented editing rooms. Nobody had their own editing room. Um, and so, uh, we went into somebody's editing room on a Friday night, like after they left for the weekend and yeah. just, just, just basically took it over for the weekend. And we, we basically got in like, you know, six o'clock, seven o'clock on a, on a Friday night. And we, we didn't come out until like 6am on Monday morning. We had a trailer. And at that point we, we, we had become friends. And so, Anytime, you know, New Line needed a trailer, they needed to put titles on a foreign feature, or they needed to cut, you know, cut stuff out to get a, you know, a rating or whatever, you know, they, they call me up, you know, plus we were just, you know, personally friends. We just, you know, we hung out a lot. So, you know, I got to, uh, you know, I got to meet a lot of people that I probably never, never would have met. I mean, you know, uh, New Line were the first people to distribute John Waters. Yes, um, Dreamers people Studios, to distribute yeah. Werner Herzog. I mean, you know, Bob. Bob always had a taste for for the oddball. You know, yeah. uh, I, I, I remember. Uh, I was talking about. He said, "Jack, you got to see this film. You got to see this film." And, and he said, "He can't. He can't believe it." And and so he he shows me Pink Flamingos. You know, <laughs> and uh, I, I mean, there's a scene where. 
there's this girl, she lifts up her dress and she has a dick or something. Yeah. <laughs> it just blew his mind, you know. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's raucous. Yeah, so. Punk rock, yeah. Pink Flamingos is a weird movie. There's a part at the end where Divine needs sh- dog shit. Yes, yes. I remember everybody going, getting crazy about that. I remember there was a weird scene earlier in the film where Divine, the, playing, Divine's playing the mother of another dude, and she, like, sucks on his flaccid penis. And I remember that being like, what is going on here? Yeah, yeah. it was It's pretty, like, if, if you had told me, how would you like to bet a million dollars that John, one of John Waters' movies will be turned into a Broadway hit musical. Yeah. <laughs> I would have said, here's the money. Yeah. I mean, what are the odds that, you know, and now he's, you know, he, he goes around giving lectures at colleges and gets like, you know, $20,000 to give a lecture. Yeah. So he's sort of become a cultural icon. He's an author too. He writes as well. He's oh, a- yeah. He's, he's, a, he's a Renaissance man. I mean, you know, he's a, you know, he's a very smart guy. Yeah. You you got to work on the Street Fighter uh, film, Rest in Peace, Sonny Chiba. Was that because a New Line distributed that, right, I think? Yeah, I, I, I cut the trailers. Yeah. I cut the trailers for, this, for the Street Fighter films. Iconic. If you got to fight, fight dirty. <laughs> yeah. You That's also wrote um, for uh, the script for the Tattooed Hitman, right? Well, you know what? Um, it's interesting because that's somehow in my credits. And I was at a film festival, and Quentin Tarantino was, was there. And, you know, so I met him. He said, oh, Jack Shoulder, you wrote The Tattooed Hitman. And he didn't say, oh, you directed The Hitman. Or else he said, the tattooed. I, I didn't write The Tattooed Hitman. <laughs> I, 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 uh, I actually supervised the dubbing of the film into English. It was the only, only time that I ever uh, – well, I did one other. I mean, New Line had a company that would handle all – or the dubbing. It was kind of a specialty, but for, for some reason I ended up doing it. So I basically, I was given like the translation of the Japanese script. And so I basically then took it and put it into better English, you know? Um, and so Bob gave me a writing credit <laughs> because he wanted to ha- make it sound like there were some Americans who worked on the film. You know, because he didn't want it to sound like it was all Japanese, you know. That's uh, what friends are for. Yeah. So <laughs> so I, I did not deserve that credit at all, you know, uh, because I, I had nothing to do with writing the film. Yeah. Um, I mean, there was another film. He, he distributed the first film by Peter Weir, which was called The Cars That Ate Paris. Uh I don't know whether you've ever seen it, but it, I haven't seen that one. No, it's like it's, it's a really interesting film. I mean, it, it, there's a small town in the, in the middle of nowhere in Australia, and the only thing they have going for it is a really bad curve, and so there are these car accidents that always happen on this curve, and there are all, all these people who are like, you know, middle-aged, church-going kind of people, but they basically mine all these cars that there's something like rotten in there, you know, in, in spite of the fact that everything looks, you know, very normal and, 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 and very middle class and everything. And, uh, and then there are all these teenagers who have these like souped up cars that, that, that basically look like Mad Max cars. So, you know, they have like teeth in the front and horns and stuff yeah. like that. And they're like represent like the real, like all of the bad stuff that's come out underneath, you know, this, this middle class, uh, 
pretext. And um, and it was it was a pretty interesting film. And of course, you know, Peter Weir's a great filmmaker. I mean, he he's a great filmmaker. Um, and uh, Bob called me up one day and said, "Well, I got this film by this this new Canadian director." And I want to dub everybody with an American accent, so this is because nobody wants to see a film that was made in Australia. So, <laughs> so I, I looked at the film and 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 I thought, I don't really think I don't want to mess this film up. So I, and and actually, the the, the storyline is that this this one guy is driving through town, and, and he has an accident, and and and. Um, Basically, like the mayor decides to adopt the guy as his son, yeah. you know. So I said, why don't we just dub that guy as American? So it's like, you know, so everybody else can be um, Australian. And there's an American guy who wanders into this weird town in Australia. So, so Bob, and it also saved Bob a lot of money. So uh, that's that. That's that's what we did, and they also retitled the film instead of the cars, the cars that ate Paris, because the little town's name was Paris. Uh, New Line re- retitled the film "The Cars That Eat People," which I thought was really terrible. Uh, yeah, I've, I've never met Peter Weir, but you know, if I ever did, he probably punch me in the mouth. So. <laughs> it's okay. We'll put in a good word for you. Okay. I want to run back to Alone in the Dark real quick. Um, you know, the, that cast, another cast that was completely phenomenal. You know what I mean? You got Jack Palance, who has got to be one of the most intimidating actors on screen. Is he that way in real life? What's it like to work with Jack? He was a very intimidating. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean... Uh, well, somehow he agreed to do the film. Um, it was, I, you know, it was at a point in his career when he would basically do anything that paid, you know, so, yeah. so we, 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 we paid, you know, not a huge amount of money. I think he got $60,000, which was, you know, which wasn't bad money at that time. Yeah. Um, and the producer told him there wouldn't be any night shooting in Alone in the Dark. So, um, <laughs> so, um, uh, and and then before we were going to start shooting the film, he 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 got uh, he had done a pilot for a TV series that was Ripley's Believe It or Not, where he was like the host. Yeah. And he was supposed to go to Florence to shoot some stuff for the show while we were shooting our feature. And so he he said, "Gee, you know, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to back out." And the our our uh, producer said, uh, you can't do that. We have a contract. If you try to back out, we'll, we'll, we'll sue you. So he was like forced, instead of going to Florence, he was forced to like go to New Jersey and shoot all night long. So <laughs> yeah. he was not a happy, happy guy. Yeah. And, um, and this first day that we shot, you know, which is my, my first day shooting feature, uh, it didn't, didn't go particularly well. It, it was like an easy day and we didn't make the day. And, um, we were out in somewhere in the middle of New Jersey that hardly, you know, the crew could barely find them. We got there, like the guys from the union were standing there with their cameras, taking pictures of everybody. And, uh, yeah. uh, and then at the end of the day, Bob says, I met Jack Pounds and he's like, he's really angry and he's really pissed off. And, <laughs> um, we were walking 
walking down the street and somebody said, hey, are you Jack Pounce? And I thought he was going to punch the guy. <laughs> and so I had a panic attack. Yeah. Uh, I mean, literally a panic attack, you know. Uh, and then he said, oh, and you have to have dinner with, with, with Martin Landau now. And so, uh, so uh, I literally, I went into a liquor store and I bought like a fifth of bourbon. <laughs> and I got in the taxi cab and I'm like drinking the bourbon to try to calm myself down. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I had dinner with, with, with Landau uh, and his wife. Uh, and he, you know he's the nicest man in the world, lovely, yeah. lovely guy. And we 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 stayed friends. You know he was like a, a, a mentor to me um, for a long time. And he was telling me stories that he had worked with Palin's and that I don't know he had worked with this. Uh, there was this 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 one actor and he was supposed to hit the actor in the head with a lead pipe, and the the prop guy gave him a a rubber you know fake pipe. Yeah. And Palin says he says. What are you giving me a fake pipe for? I need a real pipe. I can't do this anymore. He said, well, what do you, what if you hit the guy? He said, I'm not going to hit the guy. You know, you swing it, you know, and the guy goes like this. And, and so the, the prop guy said, well, if, if the other actor's okay with it, you know, so the other actor said, sure. If they do the scene, he cracks the guy's head open. So all of this is like not making me feel good. So, yeah. so I was like, you know, pretty nervous. And I got back to my my apartment, and, and I thought, I'm not going to let this guy push me around. I'm the fucking director. Yeah. I'm not going to let him push me around. So I, uh, you know, I kind of like, and, you know, managed to get to sleep. And I woke up the next day, and I was like, I'm the director. I'm not going to let this guy push me around. So uh, so I I met him, and uh, uh, I said, Mr. Palance is on the set. We were shooting in this mansion. This, and, 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 you know, we didn't have money for trailers or any stuff like that, but they they had put him in like this big room and they decorated with flowers and stuff. And and I walk in and, and this is huge room and there's Palance sitting in a chair all the way at the far end of the room, like Mussolini, you know, <laughs> walk all the way across the room to get to him. And, uh, and you know, he was... Um, I, I would say cordial, um, polite, but not particularly friendly. Yeah. And, you know, there he is, you know, that face that you see, yeah. you know. Uh, and he's a big guy, too, you know. Um, and, uh, and he informed me that we had two scenes to do. One was the dialogue scene, the one where where he's introduced to, to Dwight Schultz and they're walking along and, and he says that none of us are crazy. Doctor, we're all just on vacation. And, and he said he couldn't do that scene because no one had told him and he had trouble memorizing lines. And so he couldn't possibly do that scene today. And then there was another scene at night where they escaped from the mental hospital and they, they uh, take a car from, from one of the doctors and, and kill the doctor. And he said, and, and, and I don't want to, kill anybody. I, I, I really don't like violence, so I don't want to kill anybody. Huh. So, so so that was the start. So I I, I said, well look Jack, um, we gotta shoot this dialogue scene this afternoon. Um and uh that's the only time we can shoot it. So um we'll do whatever you need. You know, you want me to make up cue cards, I'll make up cue cards, you want me to break it up into 
little pieces. Uh, I can do that. And it was a walk and talk. So I, I'd set up, it was a long dolly shot, but I was prepared to shoot it, you know, however we could shoot it. Yeah. Uh, and when it came time to shoot it, you know, probably, you know, three or four hours later, first take, he just nailed it. Yeah. Uh, and the second take, which is, I think, the one that we used, he nailed it again, even, even better. And I said, I said you know, and, and, and I was like, wow, Jack, I, that was incredible. I, that was absolutely, you know, I mean, not that he had done it, but that he had done it so incredibly well. It, it was just like, holy shit, he was so really good. I mean, he's great in that scene. Yeah. And, and I said, Jack, that was just, that was amazing. And he looked at me and said, ah, you're full of shit. <laughs> and that was his way of, you know, that was like the New York thing. That was his way of, like, you know, uh, uh, New Yorkers or, you know, people in Boston probably say, fuck you, when they mean, hey, I love you, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was his way of kind of, and that kind of broke the ice. And then and then later on, after that, uh, we broke for, for dinner, and I went back to his room, and he was friendlier. And I said, so what are we going to do about tonight? And he said, well, I really don't want to kill anybody. And I said, well, you know, Jack, it's in the script. He said, well, why? So I said, well, we need to know your character is capable of, of, of murder. And he looks at me with his face and he says, they'll know. (laughs) And he was right. Yeah. You need to do anything. You just knew yeah. from the way he carried himself, who he was. It was like a, one of the great lessons I learned about filmmaking. You and know, Brando. Brando was like that too, a little bit. Do you like a little, a little difficult? I heard a recent uh, story about uh, Michael Ironside, uh, where he was like, you test the directors. You know what I mean? It was a, a new director in that situation. This Ironside, where you kind of you give a little push to see how much that they will stand behind what they believe, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Well, well, yeah, I mean, uh, you do get tested, you know. Um, uh, and so so I said, well, uh, well, what are we going to do? I mean, somebody's got to kill him. She said, well, I have the fat guy do it. I said, <laughs> all right. So so I went up to, to, to Shay, yeah. uh, you know, who was, you know, wandering around somewhere, and I said, listen, Jack, Jack doesn't want to kill anybody. Um, he says, let's, uh, let's have, uh, the fat guy do it. Uh, Erlen Van, Van Litt, who, who, uh, by the way, is like a graduate of MIT. Oh. He's like a genius IQ guy. I mean, uh, and, uh, and I said, I don't think we need to have Jack do it. And I said, okay, fine. So, so that was that. The, uh, you brought up, uh, Landau. Yeah, I, that that's an extremely dark character too. There's like a comedic and super dark at the same time. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. He, he's he's quite quite funny in a way. Um, Did he? Was there a lot of improv and uh, with with the with the, with those characters, or was it straight from the script? Uh, straight from the script, but you know they they took it to places. You know, that I wouldn't have necessarily right. taken it. You know. Yeah. Like I mean when you have people like like that, I mean the reason that they're 
famous, uh, unless they just have a pretty face, but the reason that they're famous <laughs> is there's something about them, the choices they make or what they do, that's just compelling, you know? It just there's there's something about them that that's special. I mean, um, you know, if you, if you go to a rock concert and there's some, like, rock star, you know, you could be sitting way in the back and you can feel that energy that that, that person is exuding, you know. Right. And it's, 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 it's the same thing with these great actors. That just says, they have this ability to project their emotion like a, like a beam at you and you feel what they're feeling and you can, you know, they can say, uh, yeah, I feel great. And you know that they're, you know, hurting or, or whatever, you know, yeah. you can, their emotions, um, just come out to the audience, you know, um, and they have a kind of a charisma. I mean, I've worked with people who were really good actors, wonderful actors who, who didn't have that. And then other people who were not as good, but they had some kind of charisma, you know, when you get both, you know, then you get, you know, the real deal. Yeah. I can, I think Landau was probably like the middle personality with, with Jack Pounds was kind of intense. Landau was in the middle. And then Donald Pleasance always, you know, I always feel like it's good times around Donald. Like he's happy, you know what I mean? Big lovable, yeah. very huggy, like in the movie, you know what I mean? Yeah, well, I mean, he was, uh, he was the first, the first of the people that we cast. Um, you know, basically the, the producer came to me and he said, I think I'd get Donald Pleasance for this role. What do you think? And I, you know, I, I thought Donald Pleasance was one of the great character actors in the world. Yeah. So I was like, Oh my God, I could work with Donald Pleasance. That would be like, you know, heaven. And so, you know, we paid him. He showed up. I mean, that's, you know, the British, you know, the British actors that I've worked with, um, I haven't worked with a lot, but, you know, I've, I've worked with a half a dozen and, um, it's kind of what they're like. They're, they're very professional. You know, they don't put up a fuss. They basically, they, they show up. You know, it's a job. They show up, they do their job, they get paid, they go home, you know. Uh, you know, it's like I, I've said in some other interviews, it's like, you know, you hire a plumber. The plumber doesn't say, what kind of bathroom do you have? I don't know if I want to work in a bathroom like that. You know, they come over and they say, okay, show me where the toilet's okay. And you pay them their, you know, their 150 bucks and they, and they leave and that's it. You know, they don't, you know, and that was kind of the way, the way Palance was, you know? So it was, it was, um, I mean, I was more intimidated by him than I was, honestly, by, by Palance. Really? Well, because, you know, I, I, I knew Palance was, 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 a you know, a, a terrific actor, but, but I thought, you know, Pleasance was, was like one of the great actors of, of the world. And so yeah. how am I going to direct, you know, to direct this guy? Yeah. But it's kind of like you get in a, a Ferrari. You know, and you just nudge the wheel and suddenly you go around the corner. That's what it was like, you know. It's just, you don't have to, like, stomp on the gas pedal. Or t- you know, you just, you know, you give him a little bit and, you know, there yeah, it yeah. is. So, Is there, pre like, actors that big, is there pre-production work that you do with them? Or is it pretty much, you know, they get the script 
uh, you give some notes, and then they show up, and you guys kind of jive with what that day. How's that kind of? I I try to rehearse. Yeah, I try to get a few days to rehearse, but in the in the case of Alone in the Dark, the they just showed up on the day. Yeah, you know, I mean, uh, uh, I don't, I don't know how much Donald and I discussed the role. You know, he just came in and we. We did a scene, and, and he was. Uh, I mean, the first the first scene that we did, you know, we did take one, and, and my mind went completely blank. Yeah. You know, I couldn't focus on anything. So I said, "Ah, that was pretty good, Donald. Let's 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 try it one more time." So so he did it again, and I could kind of focus. And then I gave him a note, a small adjustment. He said, "Okay," and and he did exactly what I asked him to do. And I thought, hey, this isn't that bad, you know. The guy just did what I asked. Because, you know, I was having, like, these nightmares where I'd be on the set and nobody would listen to me. Yeah. Or I'd be on the set. I I, I, I still have this, this dream where I'm on the set and I'm, like, in my pajamas. <laughs> and I kind of don't want anybody to, to notice that I'm in my pajamas or maybe I'm just in my underwear, you know. <laughs> uh, and I haven't read the script. Um you know, I guess it's a common dream that uh, people have. You know, yeah. the actor's nightmare where they, they get out on the stage and they don't know what what the play is or what they're so, <laughs> so it's a common anxiety dream. So, so the fact that I was able to like ask do something actually listen to me, yeah, yeah, was was impressive. You know, <laughs> well, okay. Yeah, man, I can only imagine being the nerve, the nerve wrackingness of being on your first feature length film. There's a lot on the line, and now you have these gi- those three gigantic personalities. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I mean, Landau was very Landau was 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 very easy, and I, I mean, it wasn't like I never directed a film. You know, I mean, I had done the Garden Party, I had worked with with Beatrice Strait, I had worked with with some good actors, I'd worked with a few actors who were a little bit difficult. Um, you know, not terribly difficult, but a little bit difficult. Yeah. And I and I wrote the script and I had a very very strong idea of exactly what I wanted, um, and that was what I was going to get. I mean, I mean, there was a scene where you know, Palance and I disagreed, and uh, there's a scene where the three of them are lying in bed, mm-hmm. uh, uh, the three maniacs, and they're like plotting yeah. about how to get out, and. Palin said, um, I want to stand up. And I said, no, no, I, I need you to lie in the bed. I, I just, I, I had this, like when I wrote this scene, like these three peas in a pod that they're just yeah. all lying there in bed. And Palance want, want to get up and walk around. And I said, no, no, I, I really need you to sit and lie in the bed. And, and we couldn't agree. And, and after about five minutes, Lana said, do it the kid's way. <laughs> Give the kid a break. Just do it the kid's way. And and so so Pounds did it did it my way. Yeah. And, and then actually a few days later we we were shooting the scenes in the in the mall where the, where where there's rioting. Yeah. And it was like a complete disaster. Um, we didn't have enough time, and everything went wrong, and. Uh, and I was exhausted because we'd shot for like 20 hours straight the night before. Um, you know, I got like three hours of sleep, uh, and then another 
horrible light. And at one point, my mind just went blank. Um, I figured out how to, there was only one way out because they let all the extras go except for, uh, and I needed the extras to do this. Like I figured, you know, well, how can I take this big scene and just boil it down into one shot or two? And I, and I, and, and the extras that I needed, they sent them home. And so my mind just went blank. I just didn't know what to do. I mean, it was like one of the lowest points of my life at that yeah. point. And so I, I, uh, Palance and, around. and move what? Him, I had to move them around per shot type deal, get into that territory. It was, it was just that I figured out there was a whole big thing that happens inside the, the, uh, the shopping center, you know, yeah. and they had created a, uh, a space for me to do it. But, you know, I had, instead of a 12 hour day or night, um, you know, I had like four hours and I had very few extras. And then the things that I needed, they, I figured out, okay, here's, here's how I can make this work. And then, you know, they had sent the extras away. So my mind just crashed. And, yeah. and, and so there was a room where Landau and Palance and Erlen, the fact, uh, the, or the, the four escapees were waiting. And I, I walked in there and I said, listen, guys, um, I'm really sorry, but um, I've had kind of a setback here. And I just, I'm not quite sure what we're going to do, but, you know, I'll, 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 I'll figure something out, you know, and, and it, it was pretty clear that I was just totally, you know, fucked up. And <laughs> as, as I turned around to leave the room, Palance said, hey, Jack. And I said, yeah. You know, I think he's going to give me some shit. He says, remember that scene the other night where you wanted us to all lie in the bed? And I said, yeah. He said, you were right. And then he just turned around and walked away. You know? But that was the kind of guy he was. Yeah. Yeah, so, Earl Lids. Earl Lids, what you got to, you know, he might not be a big name like the other three, but he definitely held his own in that film for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, we had, we had a terrific cast. I mean, um, uh, yeah, Dwight, Dwight Schultz. Schultz. Yeah. And, you know, the, all, all, the, the little girl and, um, uh, what's her name? Hedwig, who, who, who played Dwight's, Dwight's wife. I mean, yeah. yeah, we had a really good cast. Really good yeah, cast. The family was great. Yeah. The family yeah. dynamic of it was really well, which is good because sometimes when the family dynamic isn't quite, it throws off the whole thing. Yeah. Well, I mean, those are the things that you really have to be careful about. It's like kind of the horror will take care of itself. The action will take care of itself. You know, you got to build the characters so people, the characters are believable and you, you care about the characters and then you care about what happens to them. Yeah. So that was always important for me. Yeah. And it, it definitely does. Anybody out there listening who haven't seen Alone in the Dark, go pick it up immediately. It's, uh, it's like it's psychological horror, you know what I mean? It's in, it gets in there. Um, next up, we're gonna we're gonna mosey into the next film, which is A Nightmare on Elm Street Two: Freddy's Revenge, which is coming coming off of the the success of the first one. Those are big shoes to fill. And I know, I think I heard that Wes was attached to direct for a while, up until the last two weeks or something like that. Last well, six weeks, yeah. Six weeks, and the uh, issue with the script, because he didn't like how he came into real life, I believe, right? Right, yeah. exactly. Right, so so they called me up, and it was going to start shooting in six weeks, and they asked me if I would do it. 
you know, because I, I, I was familiar with it, you know, because I, I had read an early draft of the script. I'd read the shooting script. I had a little bit to do with the editing. I mean, very little, but, you know, I, I was in the editing room for a couple of days with, with the editor, uh, you know, and I, um, you know, I, I had a pretty good understanding of what it was all about. So, uh, and they, they, they trusted me. And, you know, basically they, they wanted a film called Nightmare on Elm Street with a two at the end of it. So they could squeeze <laughs> some more money out of, out of the title. That was basically where they were at with it. So, uh, yeah. So, I mean, my, my, my first reaction was to, to, to say no. Uh, because I didn't want to do another horror film. Uh, I didn't want to do a sequel to a horror film, which is even worse. Um, uh, not that I had a lot going. I mean, uh, Alone in the Dark, you know, and actually, you know, I went back and I looked at some of the reviews a, a yeah. while ago and, and actually got good reviews. Um, but it never, you know, never really caught on. Yeah. And, um, you know, it, it could have been my, you know, my one and only feature. Maybe, you know, I mean, who knows? Sure. Uh, but a friend of mine, the, the guy who had produced the garden party was now out in Hollywood, very successful producer said, he said, Jack, don't be an idiot. The film's going to make a lot of money and you'll have a directing career. So I said, yes, you know, I thought it was kind of a challenge and it was, again, it was very, it was very scary because there was, you know, uh, it was very complicated. You know, there were a huge number of special effects, none of which I knew how to do. Um, you know, the scale and scope of the film was, was much bigger. Um, I didn't, honestly, I didn't feel pressured to create a masterpiece, um, or that, you know, the franchise was in my hands and if I screwed it up, you know, I, you know, none of that ever crossed my mind and, and knew I never really put any, any, you know, they just wanted to get it done. They had a script and they just wanted the script to get done, you know, well, and that was it. Um, you know, the only, the only thing that they told me was they wanted to keep Freddie dark. They didn't like the makeup, the original makeup, and they wanted to keep him dark and scary. So that was that was the only thing that that they really, you know, told me. And he is. I, I yeah. often, he's the I think the scariest he looks in the entire franchise is part two. That the way the skin the when when they later show him with like some flesh tone to it with the with the burns as well, I think that it's just kind of the way his face is in part two, I was just like it's burnt. It's got that vibe to it. I really love the, you know, the yeah. shot. Yeah. Well, I mean, first of all, um, they didn't like the makeup. So, uh, I found Kevin Yeager, you know, who Kevin was really, um, you know, he's not one of these makeup artists who like grew up reading Fangoria and, you know, looking at bodies of corpses. You know, he, he went <laughs> to art school. He was, he was a sculptor. Yeah. You know, who then, you know, got a job working for Rick Baker. But but he really, you know, he was an artist. So um so I liked that about him. And and he was basically I, I mean, we had another guy by the name of Mark Showstrom who who had his own team yes. who did like the transformation effects and some of that. Uh Kevin Kevin's main job was was Freddie. 
you know, which was like, you know, every day was, you know, three, four hours to put his makeup on, you know, and then he did a few other things, but, um, and, and then Jacques Haitkin, who was the cameraman, he had shot the first one. He was, he's a really good cameraman. You know, he was somebody that I had actually wanted to, to get to shoot alone in the dark, but I don't, either he wasn't available or we couldn't pay him enough money or, you know, whatever. So, so he had already shot the first one. So he was very familiar with, with the whole thing. So I think that, uh, you know, he was able to even do a better job on the, on the second one. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I remember, um, the scene where he like pulls the skull away. Yep. Says you, you've got the body, I've got the brains. Yeah. And the Jacques just took a, a really long time to let, he had like these, these little, these little lights with these little things called snoots, little, like, little tubes on the end that he could just pinpoint light. And he was just, you know, it just had, it, it was very, very, very intricate to get it just right, you know. If Robert had moved one inch, you know, this way or that, it wouldn't have, you know, but, you know, Robert is really pro. Oh, yeah, for sure. Uh, there was time, I believe, where Robert, uh, there, he was up in the air a little bit for part two, right? Them bringing them in, or they? Well, they they. I asked them if if they were bringing him back, and they said, "Well, he, he wants more money. His agent's asking for more money. We don't want to give him more." You know, they felt they were being taken advantage of. Yeah. So, uh, I said, "Well, you know," and at that point, you know, all they knew was that Elm Street made money. You know, Bob. Bob was very excited about Elm Street the original Elm Street, because he thought the concept, the script was so great. You know, he just loved the whole idea of it. Yeah. And, you know, this is before they cast Robert England as Freddie or, you know, anything else or Johnny Depp or anything else. You know, he loved the concept and, 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 and he was convinced it was going to be a hit. And um, so when it was a hit, I think that what he thought was, well, I guess I was right. that The script this concept was such a great concept that uh, it made a lot of money. So, you know, and Robert was really good, but he was just one element. You know, yeah. because at that point, like Friday the 13th, you know, the, the killer, you know, basically jumps up, kills people, and goes away, you know. Uh, and anybody could, could, could do it, you know, like in Halloween. Uh, you know, the thing that, that they didn't understand, they didn't fully get, was that Wes... You know, if you look at Robert England, you wouldn't picture him as the guy who's going to be this horrible, you know, child killer, you know? Yeah. He's, you know, he almost looks goofy in a way, you know? Yeah. Um, and he's not big, he's not hulking, you know, he's none of that, you know? I, I, I mean, he's, you know, he's not small, but he's a normal-sized guy. Yeah. But he's just, he's very wired. He's very, um, got a lot of energy. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't know, you know... The smartest thing that Wes did with that movie was was Cass Robert, you know, who was yeah. not the obvious choice for the role, and um, and so they just thought, you know, that we'll get somebody else, just like you know, you get uh, somebody else to play uh, Leatherface or whatever, you know, doesn't yeah. matter, uh, you know, got a lot of makeup on. Yeah. Uh, however, we never, you know. One of the main things I was doing was casting the movie. You know, I, 
I was living in New York. I flew out to L.A. where the movie was being shot. Um, and, you know, I spent a lot of time, you know, casting all the parts. But I never saw anybody for Freddy. So it never occurred to me then. But, you know, when I think back on it, um, if they if they really weren't, definitely weren't going to hire somebody to replace him, they would have had other people coming in for the role. They never had anybody come in for the role. So no. I think, you know, in the back of their minds, they're going to hire him, but they were just playing hardball, you know. Well, yeah, but I got to give you a little credit, too, because if you as a director said, you know what, guys, that might be a good idea, they probably would have leaned more in the direction of replacing him. Yeah, 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 probably if I said, you know, I don't think it matters if we can get anybody to play that role. Yeah. Yeah. Imagine a world yeah. where Robert England wasn't Freddy Krueger. That'd be crazy. If it was different people each movie like the other franchises, that'd be kind of crazy. Well, I mean, the interesting thing is that when we were in post-production, they hired a publicist. Yeah. Full-time, full they hired this guy. He lived in L.A., but we, we edited the film in New York uh, because, you know, New Line's headquarters were still in New York, and I was living in, in, in New York. So we edited it. In, in New York. And, and so this guy basically was brought on and he said, you know, he said, look, I, I read this article that, uh, I don't know, in the University of Minnesota, somewhere like, like that, uh, they had done a survey, like who's the scariest man in America? And they had said Freddy Krueger. And so he said, let's create a campaign where we say Freddy Krueger is the scariest man in America. You know, we'll, we'll create this myth that Fred is the scariest man in America. Yeah. And, and they said, well, okay, that, that sounds like a good idea. And they even, they, they did a midnight screening, uh, and, and they claimed that people were now imitating Freddy Krueger. And so they held this midnight screening and, you know, and they let the press know. And then they hired people to dress up as Freddy Krueger to, you know, so it would look like <laughs> people were. And so, to their surprise, other people came that they didn't pay were dressed up as Freddy Krueger. They said, maybe something's going on here, you know. But it wasn't until, like, you know, we, I, I was with, with Bob when the movie opened. And whenever Freddy was on screen, you know, the audience would go crazy. And at that point, they realized that, because, you know, if you look at the original poster, Freddy's not on the poster. Right. There's no Freddy. There's a claw. And, and, and that's really like was New Line's mentality was the claw, the concept. Yeah. You know, but there's no Freddy. You know, if you, if you then, I mean, I, I have, uh, oh, yeah, I wanted to ask you about the posters too after because, uh, there's the, like, it's the only one in the franchise, I think, that actually has two, like, this definitive posters, you know, that VHS artwork of him creeping around the corner with the glove. I love the death. I, I you know, that's kind of, that was one of the first visuals of Freddy I ever seen. <clears throat> right. Well, well, I mean, you know, after the movie came out, uh, you know, on the DVD, yeah. um, they, uh, you know, Freddy's in the poster and, 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 and he gets top. Top billing, you know. If you look at the, uh, I'm, I'm looking at the original poster right right now. It's the man of your dreams is back. Yeah, and uh, it says, you know, uh, Mark Patton gets top billing. 
And then it says at the end, and Robert England as Freddy Krueger. Yeah. Uh, you know, if you look now, it says Robert England, you yeah. know, gets the top, top billing. So, so by the, so, so from theatrical to VHS, they get, they hear earned a lot of respect with the producers. Well, yeah. And then it was clear that, you know, <laughs> that they were going to have to pay him whatever he wanted. Do you know where exactly that second artwork came from? I really love that second artwork a lot. What the, the peek, peeking around the corner, uh, Oh, no, the one with the one with with uh, yeah, I got it somewhere. Uh, let's see. Yeah, it's a. Uh, I remember the first, the like the first horror movies I ever seen. I seen a double feature of part two and part three with my uncles, and uh, I remember uh, that artwork. Burnt into my brain. I love that artwork. It's fantastic. Like I said, he's, it's, it's the scariest he looks, and it's right in your face, right up in your face. Here, here we go. I, I got the. Uh, let's see. The, the, yeah, yeah. The full set here. I remember that was so expensive when that came out. That was like 150 bucks. Like, and that seemed like. Uh, the sky's the limit of uh, Mundo pricage when it came out. But I had it. I got that. Oh, oh this actually has the... Uh, it's got the theatrical, yeah. The, the original poster on it. It does, yeah. The The only time I've ever seen the other one is for the VHS cover artwork. That's why I was, I was very interested because I know that, uh, you know, it goes back and forth with people liking both. Um but uh, I know that that second, that the, the, the VHS artwork is uh, beloved, I think, visually. I was just curious. But that kind of makes sense with the way they're promoting it. They're promoting it more as selling it as a Freddy movie by the time the VHS came around. Well, yeah. Well, yeah, because, you know, N- Nightmare on Elm Street was Freddy. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Uh, speaking of Freddy, what's it like to direct Freddy Krueger? Uh, Robert England. At this point in the game, Robert might not even have been fully aware of the full Freddy character. It was still in development, you know what I mean? What was it like directing him? Uh, well, uh, as you may have heard, because they waited so long, you know, like two weeks before we were going to shoot, they said, we we managed to close the deal with, with Robert. So it was like, oh, that's fantastic. And um, and, and then I, I, I bumped into him. I I was at a theater production uh, for some reason. Like I think Lynn, Lynn Shea was knew somebody and dragged me to a, to a theater production and Robert happened to be in the audience. And so we saw each other and we talked like for the intermission, we, we talked like a mile a minute for, for 15 <laughs> minutes, just nonstop. And then we went and watched the rest of the, and, and then the first week that we shot, there was the, we shot the shower scene and there's one shot of Freddie where he walks out of the shower and, uh, he wasn't available because he, he had taken a job and, and he wasn't available the first week of shooting. So we had an extra and the extra was awful, you know, and you yeah. could just tell he wasn't Freddie, you know, if, uh, if you, if you, if you watch it, you could, you know, hopefully you don't really, uh, nobody really notices, but if you really look, you, you can tell it's not just the way he walks, the way he carries himself. And then the following week, Robert was available, and 
you know, I mean, he knew what he he knew what the character was all about. He knew what he was doing. So um, it wasn't like I had, you know, I, I had to tell him where to stand, you know, you know, in, in terms of how I had set up the shot and all that. But you know, in terms of how he was going to do the character, you know, he he had everything figured out. Yeah. Um, and he was, I mean, you know, he's a total professional. Um, you know, very skilled, very professional. Had a great attitude, uh, very easy to work with, very open to suggestions, very creative. I mean, he was, uh, you know, I mean, he was a, a pleasure to work with, you know, and he always got 100%. He, you know, he, he, he would, he would come up with it with a few things. I mean, uh, so yeah, he was, he was great. This was the first film you worked with Clue on, right? Right. Yeah. Yes, and, and I had such a good time with him. And, you know, loved him so much that uh, that I cast him in my next film. Yeah, him and uh, him and Mark. I love the dynamic of him and Mark with the father and son. There's such a weird dynamic yeah. there, but it's it's fun. It's like a very fun character character uh, little uh, collaboration. Yeah, well, well, I mean, I you know, Clue Clue was kind of you know the way the character was written was a pretty much of a caricature, not. Not a character, you know, yeah. like a character the the dumb adult, you know, who doesn't get what's going on, and and you know, it was it was very broadly written, um, you know, and 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 Clue could could kind of play into that goofy part of it, but um, there's a scene it, it kind of tells you about Clue uh, because uh, you know he has to act like a complete dick to his son, you know, and he's yeah. like completely clueless to what's going on. And he ha- doesn't seem to have any, any recognition of what, that his son is suffering and all the rest of that stuff. And there's a scene where, uh, after he, uh, he, the, the scene in the shower, the cops bring him back to the house, like late at night. Yeah. And, and uh, uh, you know, the next day it's like, well, you know, you're going out, what are you taking drugs or whatever? But, but when Mark comes into the house, there's this moment where Clue just kind of like touches his face and it's very kind of loving. Like he just, you know, it wasn't in the script, but he just couldn't help him. Like, you know, that he just knew that this guy is, is his son and it was just something that he put in that very much is like Clue. You know, it was just a wonderful, just a good human being. It was a touching a good, moment. Yeah. He was yeah. trying to relate he's just to a his good, son. Yeah. He's just a good, a good person, you know? Yeah. I liked the you know, some people give part two hard times. I like part two a lot. Um, of course, you know, it has like, people say that it's been called uh, one of the gayest horror movies, which is, you know, it is what it is. I think it's great times, you know what I mean? Um, you can kind of see it going back and forth, but I think it's just kind of like, I think Mark, you know, he he has a little feminine, feminist, feminine thing to him, which is, that's that's awesome. And I think that that's kind of what what it is. You know, everybody says, well, they knew they were making, that's what they knew they were making. And, I, and a lot of people say no. And I can understand no, because it's just kind of the character that it flows, a little bit of the true, the real person comes out of the character type deal. Yeah, you know? well, well, I mean, look, um, you know, every every interview that I do, somebody asks me this. Yeah, I so, figured that. <laughs> so, so I, you know, I, I, it's something that I've thought about and I, I've, I've said this a number of times, so if if any of your viewers have already heard this, you can you can 
you know, fast forward. But um, <laughs> when I was doing the script, uh, when I was directing the, the film, I, I, you know, I had very little input into the script. Normally I have a lot of input into the script. Um, but in this case, basically, the script is was what it was. And, you know, we didn't have a lot of time to mess around with the script. Dylan was happy with the script, so the job was to pretty much shoot, shoot the script. So, you know, I, I, I saw it as about teen anxiety. So, I mean, first of all, this is, you know, 19, early 1980s, you know. Uh, things were not politically correct. There was, you know, none of that kind of, you know. Yeah. None of that, none of that kind of stuff was, was, was around. Um, uh, and I saw it as about, uh, teen sexual anxiety. Right. You know, and, um, you know, it's this, it, the script basically, the, the final girl role was played by a guy. Yeah. And, um, so I saw a lot of actors for the role. And Mark was the one that was was my clear choice um, because he, he seemed to be able to convey a lot of vulnerability. Yeah. So I, you know, it, it wasn't like I said, send me an actor who can convey vulnerability, but it was just like that was kind of what I sensed was needed for the role. Yeah. And he was very good looking. And, you know, honestly, you know, no one had any, the, the idea that he was gay n- never came, you know, it wasn't like, I wonder if he's gay. It, 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 you know, wasn't anything that even was crossed anybody's mind. We, we just weren't thinking along those lines. And in fact, you know, the girls at New Line were saying, oh, he's, he's really hot. You know, he was like another Johnny Depp. He was yeah. really this hot young guy. And, 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 you know, he was supposedly somebody who was really on his way up and, you know, obviously they had made a good choice when they cast Johnny Depp. And, and so that was kind of how everybody saw him. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, I found out sort of later in the shooting that he was gay. But, uh, you know, before that, I, you know, I, I had no idea. It never, never occurred to me. I mean, when I watched the film, you know, I hadn't seen it in, in, in a long time, and it was after everybody was sort of talking about, you know, yeah. how, what, the the gay aspect of, 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 of the film. And I I think that, you know, if we had cast uh, a young Brad Pitt in that role, people would, would not be saying that. You know, somebody that really projects real masculinity. But, um, you know... Mark's agents had told him, do not let anybody know you're gay. It'll ruin your career. You have to stay well in the closet. And Mark read the script, and Mark never made that association. It wasn't until, like, you know, one of the makeup artists said, do you realize what the script is all about? You know, and then he said, oh, fuck. You know, and then he kind of freaked out, you know. But he, he never picked up on it. None of the critics picked up on it, except for the Village Voice. There was one one critic in the Village Voice, who who said this is the gayest horror film of all time, but but you know nobody else picked up on that. Right. Um, you know, then it started to become that everybody was like picking up on it. And yes, and but I mean, you know, I don't know what it was like when 
when you were growing up, but that, you know, if a kid was considered a sissy, you know, hey, you faggot, whatever, you know, that right. was kind of like the, the standard put down right. at, at, at that time. So, you know, and everybody's, you know, and everybody's questioning, uh, there's, there, there's, there's sexuality. Um, like I know my agent, uh, you know, who is very heterosexual, I can, I can assure you. Uh, you know, and he said when he was like 13 or 14, he, he got an exam by his doctor and the doctor like, you know, did oh. the anal thing and he got a heart on. Yeah. And he like freaked out. I said, Oh my God, I'm gay. And he, you know, he totally like for a month, he was like completely destroyed, you know, and I mean, that was kind of the thinking at that yeah, time. Yeah. You know, it's not like, like, like now, you know, where, where things have really, evolved yeah so so that was the kind of standard bullying thing you know and um i mean it's kind of interesting there was a uh an article i don't know a few years ago in, in fangoria about mark I, I you know because mark quit the business after elm street yeah. and, and and he basically disappeared he got aids he almost died hmm. he he survived his 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 boyfriend died of AIDS, pretty horrible. Hmm. Um, and then he he got better, and he found another career as a, a interior designer. And, and uh, then he moved to Mexico. And, and actually, when they did Never Sleep Again, it was a wonderful documentary about the whole Elm, Elm Street series. They actually hired a private detective to, to find him, and they they tracked him down to, to Mexico. You know, now he's he's, he's back, back in, on the yeah. scene, and he's he's promoting the the movie and all that, but, um, but, uh, um, you know, it was, it was, it was, a uh, a very, a very traumatic thing for him, but there's this whole new interpretation of, of the film. I mean, it's taught in colleges. There are courses, you know, where, where they include this. So, uh, and, um, I went to a, I think it was the first convention that I went to. It was like a 30th reunion for, for Elm Street. And I hadn't seen Mark literally since, since we finished shooting the movie, you know, and he, he had been through a lot. And, uh, you know, now it was this whole new interpretation of, of the film. And, uh, you know, I, uh, for me, Elm Street, came out, made a lot of money. I didn't feel a real personal attachment to it the way I did with Alone in the Dark or, or The Hidden or some of my other films. And, uh, and, and then suddenly the phone started ringing, you know, and I was, and I was working, you know, and every, you know, pe- people wanted me to, to direct movies. I had a career, you know, my friend was, 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 was right. But I, so, so I just saw it as, as kind of a stepping stone for me. You know, for Mark, the clock stopped there. So he was kind of, you know, um, thought a lot more about it than, than I had. But I'm, I mean, now that I understand it and I've seen Mark and I've seen, uh, his story, gay kids yeah. who are able to identify and feel validated. And so I'm delighted that all that, that, that all that has happened. And, you know, while it wasn't my intention to, to do that is kind of a, a very good un, unintended consequence. Um, so, uh, and and I think um, you know, there's a way to interpret it that 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 completely follows that kind of interpretation. You know, 
I mean, you could interpret it in a, in a, in a, in a completely different way. I mean, you could call it a, a Christ analogy. You know, right. here's this guy, um, you know, he has a, a woman who, you know, he, he suffers. He's kind of crucified in a way. He comes back to life again. I mean, you know, there's a, you, you could, you could do that, you know, you know, bit by bit by bit, you could, you could run it through and you could come up with a validation that it's a, that it's a Christ analogy, you know. Yeah, I agree. You know, it's just, just, just as well. And, 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 and that's in there. And, you know, I never really talked to, to Dave Chaskin, you know, who, who I knew pretty well, but I mean, he and I never really discussed the, the script, but you know, that, that might have been on his mind too, but you know, it's all part of like the hero's journey kind of thing. Yeah. Um, you know, but that, that's in there and, you know, that probably gives it some, some of its weight. And, uh, you know, a lot of, uh, initially everybody sort of brushed the film aside and then it's like, well, let's get back to three where it sort of gets back to, you know, the real Freddie, which where actually Freddie really becomes more of a stand-up comedian. You know? Right. Um, uh, I, I really liked three. I thought three was, 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 was really entertaining. I mean, um, but, uh, um, you know, that and, and Wes's new nightmare are, are my two favorites from, from the series. Did, did uh, you make a point to catch the other sequels? I, I saw them all, yeah. yeah, yeah I saw yeah. them all. I mean, I thought as it went on, they, they, they sort of each one got just a little, a little yeah. worse. I mean, four was pretty good. Five, I thought was kind of, eh. And six, yeah, yeah. and then I thought, you know, Wes's new nightmare. I, I really liked that. I thought Wes was a much better director at that point. Than he yeah. was when he did the the original one. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's it. We sequels were different at that time. You know, sequels are just a way to squeeze some more money out of out of the title. Yeah. So we we never felt that we were working with a sacred text that, that right. where we had to, you know, we just wanted to make a movie that we thought was going to be good and entertaining and, and all that. And you know, it, it did have Freddie and it did have the concept and 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 there was all that. But we we never felt that there was, you know, other than than those things that there was anything that was sacred about the original Elm Street. Um, and and so we just kind of made our own movie, you know. I mean, by the time they got to three, now there's really a franchise going on, yeah. you know. And so they have to pay attention to the franchise. Although I have to say that I think that the Elm Street series, of all the horror film series, I think it's the most interesting because each each one really is, is different. Each one yeah. really – I mean, three and four are kind of very similar in tone. I mean – Five was very different. Yeah. And six was, I don't know, whatever. It was different. It was very, it was, very but, campy, almost like the vibe of I Love Freddy's Dead has such a fun 90s vibe to it. But I think that's what saves it is that 90s vibe. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I think five was probably my 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 least favorite. Like, I agree. They were trying to do something a little a little too arty with it. And yeah. It, 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 it just kind of fell, fell flat for me. But so, uh, so I think I'm, I'm, I got interviewed by, uh, are there these two women who have a, a Facebook blog or something, uh, 
about Elm Street, and, and and they had interviewed me. They were they were one of the early people that that interviewed me about the about the movie, and um, and I don't know. There was some. I I think people were mostly appreciative, but there was someone who said, "Well, you know, it 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 it, it violates the the series and blah blah blah." And, and, and one of the girls replied, you have to look at it as its own movie, you know. If you look at it, it's just a, you know, did it follow all the rules of number one? Okay, no. But just as, as, as a movie on its own, you know, how does it work? And that's, that, that's, that's kind of how we approached it, you know. Yeah. And, and so, um, you know, it is, it is what it is. I mean, uh, I still get a nice check every year from Warner Brothers. So oh, yeah. I'm very grateful. And it, it gave me a, a career. So I mean, on, on, on that level, uh, you know, it was actually, despite my, uh, all my initial anxiety, uh, it was actually a fun movie to, to make. I had a good time. I mean, I managed to get it all, all figured out before I started shooting, which is how I work. You know, I, I, I basically figure everything out. I plan out every single scene, every single shot of the movie. Not that I necessarily shoot it that way, but I pretty much have a plan for how I'm going to shoot the whole movie. And I have everything figured out. So, so, you know, I was, I was really scared shitless when we were prepping the film, but day one, I walked on the set and it was like, you know, I got this. So, it was, it was a good group of people. And uh, it was it was a fun movie to make. Well, it's legendary. It's iconic. It's part of one of the biggest horror franchises of all time. Yeah. Whenever people bring up the, them being awake, uh, when when Freddy comes in part two, I always argue the fact that the teenagers have passed out from drinking, and the ones that die are the ones that passed out, and they're imagining their friends there with them. So you can use that if you want. Well, <laughs> well, this is kind of after the fact. Yeah. But. If if you're Freddy mm-hmm. and you, your your goal is you know how can I kill and terrorize as many people as possible? If I can only come out in in your dream, I can only kill you. But if I could figure out a way to come out when I'm not in somebody's dream because I'm trapped in the in the dream, yeah. if I could figure out a way to come out when I'm not in the dream, imagine all the damage I could do. Yeah. So it, so in a sense. That is an evolution for, 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 for Freddy. I mean, they didn't go with that, you yeah. know, in the, in the next one. They went back to, well, he can only come out during the, the dreams. I mean, honestly, I never even got that. Like, I mean, for me, <laughs> when, when, when we're shooting the film, you know, like, I could care less. I thought it was a good scene at the swimming pool. What the hell? Great you know? scene. Yeah. It's great. I mean, like I said, to go back to the horrifying, how scary he looks. I mean, you're, you have him pretty much lit up with the fire. You know, it's fully yeah. lit scenes, and he just looks. He's oozing. He's, like, melting while you're looking at him. He just looks horrifying in the red. I think it's the only one he has really red eyes, fiery eyes, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and, and all those kind of slightly tacky old-time old uh, effects, you know, the yeah, boilings. Yeah. You know, it was all, it was all done by this this real old timer who, uh, uh, you know, he'd been doing special effects like since the forties. Yeah. Uh, um, I asked him, uh, you know, and he'd worked with like everybody, 
you know, he was he was the head of special effects in I think 20th Century Fox uh, for for like a, a long time. And I I said, so of all the the people or the films that you've worked on, what are you the most proud of? And he thought, I said, I think the work I did with the Three Stooges <laughs> that was uh, encouraging. <laughs> <laughs> he built the gorilla. The gorilla suit was built by him. And it's probably, but he was, you know, like they had this stuff like, you know, when you saw people like grab, grab like the doorknob to get out and smoke comes out. Yeah. So there's this stuff called AB smoke. So you put the A stuff on the doorknob and the B stuff on the hand. And when they touch this, you know, it's like the stuff you'd buy like in a magic shop for, you know, yeah. $2, you know. Yeah. I've always wanted how they do that effect. Yeah. But yeah, part two is definitely a good film, and it's art. To go back to what we were talking about before with music and film, it's art. It's like, because it has different reactions on different people. There's people like it for the horror aspect. You know, there it's an empowerment movie now, you know what I mean? Which is, you gotta, especially nowadays where, you know, it's fighting for, for the freedom of sexuality, if you will. Um, it's important. It might be, it might be the most important film in the franchise when you look at it in that regard. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it, it, it's actually had a, 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 a social impact. Yeah. Um, so, um, yeah, I mean, uh, um, I, I was, I was at a, at a convention and there was a guy that I met and he said, he said, your, your film saved my life. And, and I said, what do you mean? He said, well, um, I had cancer. And I was going through all this treatment and I was like really, really sick and I just felt horrible. And I thought, what, what can I do to make me feel better? And, and, and he said, you know, I, I really loved Elm Street, Elm Street too. So I started, wa- you know, I, I would watch the movie and it got me through my, you know, my chemotherapy and everything. And I thought, wow, that's like one of the best things anybody's ever said to me. Yeah. So, that's, that's huge. You know, it goes back yeah. to the- the beginning when you said, you know, you, you walked out of that theater with the an uplifting feeling. I mean, that's full circle type stuff. You know, you are literally living what you want yeah. to do. You know what I mean? Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm totally grateful that people like, like my films, you know, I mean, I'm, uh, for me, you know, that was like, that, that's, that's why I, that's really why, why I did it. You know, it wasn't to get girls. It wasn't to become rich. It wasn't, you know, to, and, and that other stuff was to make people feel those emotions like, like I felt, you know? And so, you know, a few times I was able to actually do that. Yeah. The good ones do it for those reasons. You know what I mean? That's to entertain people, take people out of there. If they're, you know, if they're having tough times, you'll be able to pull them out of the badness for an hour and a half or whatever. Like I've always found that the, the people that, want to make these things for those reasons or like the, the, the ones you can kind of get behind. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. We're going to jump into the hidden real quick. Cause we've had you on for a long time. Yes. Yeah. But we're going <laughs> to yes. hit, we're going to, we'll be, we'll be semi quick with the hidden. Uh, th- right. The next film up is the hidden, which yeah. is another masterpiece. I love, you know, it's a great movie. Great movie. It's a great mashup of sci-fi and action. You do action incredibly well. I wanted to comment. You know what I mean? I think the great mashup. Um, now the hidden, it's like it's creature feature esque with that with like the sluggy thing, and I can't wait to see the hidden on a big Blu-ray 4K edition because that'll look ridiculously well. You know what I mean? Um, well, it's out there. 
It's, it's out a, there. There's a, there's a, they get a Blu-ray? Yeah, there's a Blu-ray, yeah. Really? Yeah, yeah, the Blu-ray's been out for, I got it for somewhere. Well, anyway, yeah, there, 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 there is a Blu-ray. That yeah. one snuck by me. I got two VHS. I'm an old school guy with VHS up the yin yang. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's, it's nice for nostalgia, but honestly looks like shit, you know, if you. Yeah. yeah. No, I appreciate the Blu-ray and I try to, I go to support too. Cause I, I, I'd hope you're getting some kickback from the, the, the Scream Factory release of Alone in the Dark and, uh, or Shout Factory. I'm losing my mind. And, uh, you know what I mean? And this. Hopefully. Scream Factory, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which it's good. I got, we got to give props to Scream Factory because they're, 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 yes. they're leading a righteous, righteous cause. Yes. I mean? For sure. Yeah, they're, they're, they're releasing a lot of, a lot of interesting movies. So how'd the hidden come about after Nightmare 2? Well, so after, after Elm Street 2, you know, I, I, I basically, uh, you know, uh, the film opened up on Friday, and it made a lot of money over the weekend. And Monday morning, uh, the head of my agency, who I'd never spoken to before, calls me up and says, Dino De Laurentiis is going to call you from his car in five minutes. This is like in 1983, you know, when yeah. people didn't call you from their cars. It was like, Dino De Laurentiis, and, you know, Jack, I want to do a movie with you. Let's do a movie, you know. So, uh, I never did do a movie with, with, with Dino, but, you know, I realized uh, that, that, you know, everything had changed at that, at that moment, you know. Yeah. So, but I didn't want to do another horror film. You know, everybody wanted me, you know, I was getting offered all these horror films and, you know, most of them, you know, sucked. You know, most of them were, were stupid and formulaic and, uh, I certainly didn't want to do that. And, uh, and then, um, actually New Line came to me, um, with the, the hidden, the head of production, Sarah Risher said, Jack, I, we've, we've got the script and I think it'd be perfect for you. I think you'll love it. So I said, sure, let me, let me see it. So, you know, they, they sent the script or I read the script. I just loved it. I thought it was fantastic. I said, I, I, I gotta make this movie. Um, and they, they sort of had another director who was loosely attached to it. And, and I came in and, you know, I, I strongly pitched myself. And then I met the producers and, and, you know, pitched them and, and, and we hit it off and, and they said, okay, you're, you're going to make, make the movie. So I was thrilled because, uh, you know, that was, uh, I mean, it was like a perfect script for me. You know, I, I, I'd always been a huge admirer of, of Sidney Lumet's cop movies, you know, like yeah. Serpico, Dog Day Afternoon, you know, all the, all those films. I, you know, I loved those films. You know, I loved all the cop, cop movies, you know, mm-hmm. film noir, all that kind of stuff, you know, um, cause I, I mean, while, while I, I, I was never a big horror fan, uh, you know, I love thrillers, a great, great genre, you know, I'm a huge Hitchcock fan. And so it was kind of like, like a, a Sidney Lumet movie with aliens, you know, yeah. it was all about cops. So I, I kind of loved it. You know, I loved it. It had a similar sense of humor to mine. And, uh, you know, it, it also had some humanistic elements to it because I thought it was really, it was about what it meant to be human, 
you know, because yeah. you have a, a bad alien who's come to Earth and is learning how to be a bad human being, you know, sex, drugs, rock and roll, all those things that are bad. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then you have a, a good alien who comes to Earth and he's learning how to be a good human being. And that was kind of... and. You have this basically one character who's who goes into seven different bodies, including a dog. You know, so for me, there was always like this this idea of like, who am I? You know, what am I wearing? You know, because he has to jump into another body, and then it's like, well, what am I? You know, what, you know, like there were all these scenes that I that I that I put in where they, they're looking in a mirror, trying to you know figure out what is this thing I'm, you know. I'm a dog, you yeah. know, I have a snout and paws or I got tits, you know, it's like, <laughs> so, so, so I thought it was really, you know, an interesting, really interesting concept. So I was just completely gung ho on, on making that film. Yeah, it's good. I like the dynamic between the two, the two good guy, you know, detectives, if you will. Yeah. yeah. Um, and the breakdown of it, you know, the detective, uh, well, Michael Nori, the character played Michael Nori. Um, he's kind of twisted up in his head, trying to not knowing what to believe if he if he can you know if he can believe this gentleman uh, who came, came from afar to help him. Well, he doesn't believe he's from afar. It's a far fetched story. If somebody tells you that from the get go, you want to be like, no, yeah. want to believe him. Yeah, but uh, it comes together really. Kyle McLaughlin. Yeah, he was great. Uh, yeah, it was fantastic in it. You know what I mean? Yeah. He's. Uh, He's like, he, he plays it kind of like deadpan a little bit, but like there's emotion. You can feel the emotion under the surface and uh, very good. You know what I mean? It's a very good vibe. Now that they, they stole that gun for the men in black films. You know what I mean? <laughs> it had that vibe. The little, uh, there it is. Look at that. Is that the original? That's the original. Yeah. Holy if moly. you look at it, you can see it's actually cracked. Oh yeah, uh, got dropped, got dropped and broken and glued together and spray painted and yeah, that that's it. Yeah, I mean that's interesting what what you said about Kyle because when I was shooting the film, I I I thought Michael Norrie was completely stealing the film from yeah. Kyle, and then when I cut the film together, it was clearly Kyle. You know, Kyle, there was just so much going on and. I remember at one point, I mean, usually I don't talk to actors about like what they're doing, you know, how they're doing what they're doing. I figure that's, that's their secret. That's their business. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and I don't want to know. Um, but he, he had said to me that he, he had studied with some acting teacher and the actor, the acting teacher talked about having a mask on and that there were all these emotions, but there was a mask in front of it. You know, and, and, and somehow the emotions would come through that mask. But, you know, you don't want to go, uh, you know, you don't want to play those emotions. You want to mask them and then have them come out. And, and that's exactly what, what he did. Um, I mean, he's really one of the best actors that I, that I work with. Um, you know, and I've worked with some, some really good ones, but I, I, I thought the performance he, he, he gave was so touching. And, you know, the humor and everything else. I mean, they played well off of each other. I mean, they were very well-written characters. 
So it was it was a question of a really good script, and then I, I, I just had a great sense of how to make the movie. I just really knew how to make it, you know. Yeah. Edo Ross. I always love seeing Edo Ross. Yeah. Something yeah. about he's he's got that great look. That great oh, yeah. look. You know what I mean? Yeah, Ed 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 uh Ed, Ed is a little bit of a cowboy. I mean he he um initially I kinda had a hard time with him. He didn't really he didn't really want to listen to me. Yeah. I mean not in a bad way. But he would just kind of be like doing his own thing. Like uh, we were shooting in Beverly Hills. Beverly Hills is not a nice place to shoot because you shoot in LA and, and, and there are these cops and they have like these syndicates. So you hire this one syndicate and they, and, you know, and there's a guy like a head cop and they have hired these off duty cops or these retired cops. And they have their own motorcycles and they, they work with you. You know, they have to follow all the rules, but, you know, they're only allowed to hold traffic for two minutes, but the whole traffic for an extra minute so you can do one more, you know, you can go around the block one more time and stuff like that. Beverly Hills, the cops work for the city. So when you're shooting, you know, they're not get, getting anything extra. You know, you're like a pain in the ass for them. And they're right. a bunch of fucking assholes. <laughs> and, and, and so we did the scene where... Right, right in the beginning, they're interviewing this guy. He says, "I don't know. He was the, my neighbor. He was a real nice guy. I don't know. You know what? Did, what did he do? Rob a bank?" And they said, "Quick, we got to go!" And and they run in the car and they jump in the car. And then Ross is driving, and he floors it, lays down rubber, and takes off. So, um, the assistant director comes up to me and says, "Listen, the cop in charge just said if." He lays down rubber. If, if you do another take and he lays down rubber, he's going to shut us down. So I go to Ed and I say, Ed, don't floor it when you just drive off normally. Don't do not floor it. So so we do another take and he, he does it normally. And then I do one more take. He jumps in the car and he floors the gas pedal and he lays down rubber, takes off. And the cop shut us down. Fortunately, it was the last shot of the day, yeah. and it was take take three. So we were okay, but he shut us down. Oof. And Ed actually, he actually went to court to challenge. Oh, and and he gave Ed O'Ross a ticket. <laughs> um, and he also he also had the the production manager came to visit us on the set. And, and he parked illegally. <laughs> the cop had his car towed. <laughs> the guy who was paying, paying, you know, writing the checks, <laughs> his car towed. Um, and uh, um, so Ed, Ed actually went went to traffic court to, to fight it, and, and the judge threw it out. There you go. Yeah. That's uh, a plus to it. Yeah. I, a I funny story was what. Well, I, I was going to say uh, one of my favorite things about uh, the movie The Hidden was uh, the fact that the daughter was the only one that could really tell something was going on. Yeah, yeah. Well, that was that was my my major addition to the script was that um, 
uh, Nuri and his wife just kind of had this kind of breezy kind of relationship where they kind of joked around a lot. And, yeah. and I felt it was really important for them to have a good, strong relationship where you could see that they were, that they loved each other so that, that Kyle's character could connect to that. Yeah. And that that's what he had back home, you know, and I'm not sure whether it was in the script that, that, that the, uh, the bad alien had killed his family. Yeah. I'm not sure if that was in there or not. Probably was, but I felt that if, if here's a family, so I thought, well, I've only, I can't spend much time creating a relationship between Nuri and his wife. Because it's not that kind of movie. So there's that one scene where where Kyle comes and visit that visits them in their house. And I said, "How can I how can I do this quickly?" And I thought, "Let me give him a child." And then if Kyle had a child that was killed by the alien, then he can connect to that. Right. And then also, you know, if there's a child, there's automatically there's you know normally a lot of love, you know, yeah. and so. So I, I I put her in, and then I thought that it would be good if, because she's innocent and doesn't have any preconceptions about anything, that she can see, you know, as we get clouded up from all the shit that happens to us in our lives, you know, we don't see things, but that she has a kind of a purity that she can see this stuff. So that was... Yeah, and, and I got to say, the ending where... Uh, he decides that because his his new friend, his partner now, has died, that he has taken upon himself to inhabit, to try to, you know, save that family unit. I thought that was a really moving, really touching ending of that movie. And I thought really made it really good. I really loved that. Whoops, uh, are you just... Uh, you just froze. You glitched out. Oh, oh, all right. Well, what I was saying that the ending where his partner, his now new friend who has died because of everything that has happened, the decision that he takes to, you know, go from himself into his now uh, deceased partner to try to keep and, and kind of keep that family unit that he has now kind of bonded with. I thought was a superb and, and perfect ending, which in my mind elevated the film, which I already liked, but really made it, in my opinion, something more than just, you know, you can try to chop it off to as just a sci-fi movie or a sci-fi cop movie, but that ending, in my opinion, raised it to even to another level. Right. Well, that was, I mean, that was my ending. So, yeah, I mean, that was, I mean, that's, that, that's kind of, um, what interests me is those, those kinds of things. Like, I mean, listen, you know, it's really fun to do car chases and action and all of that kind of stuff. Um, you know, and, 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 and yeah, I, you know, I, I am good at it. You know, a lot of that has, has to do with the fact that, you know, that I'm an editor, yeah. you know, and that I, did all these trailers for a lot of action movies. So I kind of know how it works. And I really, I mean, whenever you may think of, of, of my movies, they all move along. 
they're not like, you know, I hear about these directors, you know, and they have a 120 page script and they have a three and a half hour first cut. And it's like, I have, you know, I have a 110 page script and I have a, a hundred minute first cut, you know, yeah, yeah. uh, that I have to try to like make it longer. So it doesn't end up as, you know, 85 minutes because I just keep everything moving. You know? Well, I, I think one of the uh, big benefits, I mean, I myself, um, not to your level, but I've started editing a lot of uh, a lot of projects. And I think that kind of the editing mind really helps, especially, I mean, I think a lot that really elevates that film is the fact that you show a lot without, I mean, there's movies where you have someone who just, sits down and talks about, well, this is the history of my planet. This is, you know, all, you know, really go on and, and, and expound upon, you know, this and that. But with, with your films, I find that you say a lot in the visuals, in the expressions, in the shots. So that's, I mean, so you're able to, you know, do like a hundred minute film because you know how to simplify and 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 get to the core of the story in in less shots that someone who might not be an editor uh, who's filming a film might end up taking the same amount of pages and doing like a three hour film. He knows what he kind of knows what's going to be on the cutting room floor yeah. before you get to the cutting room floor, which know? which I think is 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 exceptional and what I I really kind of connect to when I watch your films. Okay. Yeah, well. Um... My my films are very much an editor's editor's films, you know. I mean, uh, if 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 you know Ridley Scott is is really a, a production designer, you know, yeah, uh, at, at heart, or a cinematographer at heart, uh, you know, and 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 other people are uh, you know actors at heart, and they, you know they 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 get great performances. I, I'm really a, an editor at heart. I mean, when I'm shooting, you know. I, I'm just sort of editing the movie in my head. I mean, you know, I'm not trying to, but it just, you know, I can just see, uh, well, I know I'm going to cut here. So I've already got this first half of the scene good. So I only need to get the second half because I know I'm going to have to cut yeah. somewhere here. So let's do another take and we're going to do the whole thing, but I'm really concerned with this part here, you know, so, so that's, that's helpful. So, you know, I can be more, more economical, but also, um, uh, a screenwriter friend of mine, you know, he talks about dialogue. He says dialogue should be like the CAA, CIA. You know, it should be like only on a need-to-know basis. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a good thing. And, and uh, uh, you know, Hitchcock also said, uh, uh, he said bad directors show people talking, good directors show people thinking. Yeah. I like that. Yeah, that's that's really true. I mean, uh, I've seen a lot of films, especially more with uh, more you know modern directors, where you know there's a scene where you could simply cut out like half the scene and do it in just you know visuals, but you have someone drone on you know explaining things which you can just show. And yeah. I mean, films are a visual medium, so. A lot, I mean, dialogue is very important, but like you said, I mean, I think the um, CIA comment is is extremely 
a good way of looking at it, especially if you're making a film, that, you know, they should only say what you really, uh, the, the, the mere necessity of what you need for the scene and show the rest. Sure. Yeah, well, um, you know, have, having worked, you know, with a lot of studios and networks and stuff like that, um, in the script stage, they always want to have you explain everything. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's always like, well, how are they going to know? How are they going to, you know, got to put this in. We got to explain all this stuff. And, and then when you get into the movie and, and, and you start to edit it, you realize that you don't need to explain it. It's, it's like, gee, the guy's like brushing his teeth and now he's in his car. How did he get to his car? Right. Well, you know, obviously. We don't need to know that. Who, who gives a shit, you know? <laughs> We're only concerned he's in his car now, you know? Yeah. So it's like, we don't need to say, well, you know, after I brushed my teeth, I, you know, I, I had breakfast and I, you know, like, who cares, you know? Yeah. Um, I mean, you don't need to show him going to the bathroom, right? <laughs> yeah. And, and, and um, I wrote and directed my first feature, Alone in the Dark. And so when you're writing these scenes, you, you tend to write the scene with a beginning, a middle, and an end. Yeah. And then when you get into the editing room, or at least when I get into the editing room, you know, what would happen after a while is, like, the scene, the movie, like, goes, you know, and stops, and then it starts, goes, stop, start. So if you cut the beginnings and the endings off, sometimes it just it goes, it goes, it goes, it goes, you know? Yeah. Um, and... And uh, so you can, you don't have to explain any, 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 any further. Um, I was, what, have, have you seen, there's a, a, a TV show, a, 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 a limited series on Netflix called um, uh, The Chair. Have you seen that one? It, no, it takes place. It's, it's, it's really good. It's only like six half hours, but it's, it's about this, this woman who, who becomes the chair of the English department in this small university. And, and, and like the best teacher in the English department accidentally, it, he's giving a lecture and he gives the Heil Hitler sign. Oh, and students take a, students who are, who are filming the lecture, they put it out on a meme and suddenly like, you know, it's like everybody like wants to get him kicked out, and, and there's a whole big thing. But but uh, 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 the woman who's played by Sandra O, oh, she has a daughter who's who's pretty eccentric, and and she takes her daughter to see a psychiatrist, and she's like you know spending most of the time talking about how horrible her her her, her job is, and um, and 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 the psychiatrist says. We spent a lot of time talking about you, but we're really here to, to talk about your daughter. And she looks looks at the little girl. She's on the floor playing, and and, and uh, she says, uh, "So uh, what are you what are you doing?" And uh, she said, "And the little girl says, well, I'm I'm, I'm I'm making something. Would would you like some?'" And the psychiatrist says, uh, uh, "Sure. What is it?" And the little girl says, "It's poison." <laughs> and then it just cuts. To the next scene, just like immediately, like it doesn't cut back to her for a reaction shot. It just boom, and it's so much funnier. Yeah, yeah. Because 
you don't need to see the the reaction, you know. Yeah. It's just boom. The punchline. Uh, you know, ah. Yeah. Uh, it's like uh, you know. Uh, sometimes you see a film and it kind of ends like three times. Yes. Did you ever see those, those yes. films? Um. So. Uh, yeah, I mean, economy. Yeah. We just want to ask one last quick question. We ask yes. about the guest. Um, we get a lot of filmmakers, actors, artists of all types that listen and watch the show. Um, do you have any words of advice for them? You know, we know the business gets discouraging. You have ups and downs. Do you have any advice for anybody that, you know, they're in a down right now, but ups will be right around the corner type deal? Well, uh, yeah. I mean, um, If you stick with it, you'll have some kind of success. It can be very discouraging. I mean, I was kind of, uh, 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 you know, um, I talk to people about, you know, what, what I've done. You know, you, you guys are probably looking at me and saying, wow, this guy was, had such a great, successful life. I mean, I never felt I was successful. I was always like scrambling. I, I, mean, I mean, there were periods when, when things were going pretty well. But, you know, honestly, most of the time, I never felt I was successful. I felt I was struggling. I felt other people were, were doing better than me. I thought, you know, um, you know, uh, all of that. Um, but it just never, I, I guess maybe I was dumb. It just never occurred to me that I wouldn't be able to, to do this. So I just stuck with it. Um, I mean, there were, there were, there were, there was one point when I was, I, I was living in uh, New York and, you know, I would get some editing work and I have some money and then I wouldn't get work and the money would start to disappear. And, and at one point I figured, well, I could always drive a cab. Worse came to worse. Um, and I got to the point where it was like, I have no more money. I got to get some, some kind of money or, you know, I, I I can't pay my rent. Can't pay my electric bill, and and I actually went to apply for a job to drive a cab. And that day, I got a call to for some work. So um, I think I have a, like a friendly angel who's been watching over me. But you know, if you if you if you and and having taught, you know, because I. I, I taught for 13 or 14 years. Uh, uh, I've seen my my students, and, and the ones that were determined have are all making a living. You know, it may have taken them a little while, but they're they're making a living. You know, if you're determined, if you you know if you if you can get along with people, um, and uh, if you're willing to work hard, you know, you just got to stick with it. It's it's kind of like this huge, like, you know, Temple of Doom, giant stone door that weighs like three tons. And every day you get up and you push on the door and it doesn't budge. But you just got to like every day get up and push. And one day the door just cracks open a quarter of an inch, you know, and then the next day you get back and you push. And then eventually, yeah, you know, it, it creaks open. So, uh, and, you know, um, when I was making movies, and hopefully I still am, uh, I got a movie that, I, that hopefully is going to go later this year, God willing. Um, but, um, 
It was very hard to make a movie. You needed a lot of money. You had to buy film. You had to get rid of all this. Now you can make a film on your phone, you know. Um, in a way, it kind of makes it too easy. Mm. You know, you've got to have a good script. Don't have a good script. There's no way you can make a good movie. You've got to have a good script. But if you've got that, then just do it, you know. Just go and do it. You can make a movie on your phone, and if it's a good movie and people are moved by it, it's all about emotion, you know. Yeah. That's, that's you know, all of us that love film. If you think about the films that you love, you think about the emotion you had when you were watching them. You know, you're either laughing or you're tense or you're, you know, sad or, you know, you're moved or whatever. And that's that's what it's all about. That's why people love art. That's that's what it does for you, you know. Um, and so that's really what you want to do, you know, is find that emotion. Work, work, work for that, whatever that emotion is, whether it's terror, whether it's, you know, funny, whatever. So that's my advice. I dig it. Very good advice. Stick with it. Hell Stick yeah. with it. I'm, I'm, I'm living proof that you don't have to be the most talented person in the world. You know, if, if there was a contest on, on TV when I was younger, you know, I definitely would not have won it. But, you know, I just persisted. Yeah. Persistence is key. Yeah. yeah. Well, Jack, we thank you very much for coming on, man. We took up a whole bunch of your time. This was yeah. great. We really appreciate you coming on, talking. We're big fans of your work, and to be able to sit down, talk some shop, discuss some things with you is a beautiful thing. We really appreciate you giving us your time. Yeah. I, I hope uh, as an editor you're going to cut this down. <laughs> well, it's just way, it's way, 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 way too long. And, <laughs> and, and uh, uh, one, one more piece of advice yeah. to your budding: the secret to creativity: avoid the obvious. True. True. Except sometimes the obvious is the way to go. And I guess understanding when to avoid it and when to go with it is where genius comes in. So, Hell yeah! Hell yeah! But, Try to avoid avoid the obvious for, for starters. We All right, guys. It was, it was it was great talking to you. You too, Jack. Yeah. Thank you. Have a great day, and uh, we'll have you on the show again sometime. We could go another two hours on the the, the rest of your career. Probably, yeah. You know I mean? Okay. So, well, uh, if, if 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 I get to do this this movie later on, we should talk about it. I, we are all for that. We are all for okay. that. All right. Well, take I care, guys. Have a, have a good Sunday. You too. Have Bye-bye. a good one. Bye-bye. Bye. And that was the man, the myth, the legend himself, ladies and gentlemen. Jack Shoulder. Dude was fantastic. Great. Loved him. You know, iconic films, you know what I mean? And the advice was fantastic, you know, because even people that, that bigger – placed in than, than, than we are at with our filmmaking, you know, these are films that will always be there. You know what I mean? They're always going to be in the zeitgeist of film floating around. You know what I mean? And we look up to that incredibly high and uh, much love to Jack and all the people who come through, you know what I mean? And uh, we hope you all got a little something out of that. We got a lot of something out of that. Oh, you know good. what I mean? Uh, everybody out there, if you're not hip, you're not familiar with Jack's films, Jack's shoulder, get out there and fucking get yourself hip to it. What are you waiting for? You know what I mean? We got some Gigantor films over here. Right? Alone in the Dark, 
masterpiece of horror filmmaking. I think Shout Factory is Scream uh, Shout Factory, I believe. I don't know why I'm doing Scream Factory. They're the TV version of the same company, I believe. But uh, Shout Factory released Alone in the Dark. That's a fucking masterpiece of a horror film. Um, can be you can kind of equate it a little bit to some Last House on the Left. Uh, maybe some fight for your life, you know what I mean? Home invasion movies that are uh, intense. I mean, super intense, the villains in it, you know, Landau, Pleasance, Palance, iconic actors, you know what I mean? And the Freddy, Robert England and Freddy Freddy, Freddy's, Freddy's Revenge Man, Nightmare on Elm Street 2, one of the first horror movies I've ever seen in my days. Classic. Hidden as a fucking masterpiece. I know it's the Hawkman's favorite movie. Uh, we got to talk about the career in those films, you know what I mean, which was kicking ass. It was nice to get that. But I do want to bring him back on for maybe a part two or three where we talk about the rest of his career because there's a Hayden Renegades, the Tales from the Crypt episode, dude. Uh, you know, Beeper was a classic one with Harvey Keitel. Wishmaster 2 he wrote and directed, and I love Wishmaster 2. I think the Wishmaster films didn't get bad until Wishmaster 3. You know what I mean? Um, Generation X, like Hawkman says, he took a dive into the Omen world, did some t- uh, for TV movie of the Omen for a bit. The dude's just been all over the place, killing it. Um, and a great dude, a really fucking great dude, which we love the most here. And if we decide to use this outro, then the other outro, we hope you all liked it. Uh, if you like this, check us out on Boombastic Media's YouTube page where you can get all our interviews. And if you want to listen to Boombastic Cast in audio format, you can catch us on uh, wherever you listen to audio shows. Boombastic Cast will be up in the mix. And if you like to get a little wild, spend a little bit of money, or, you know, supporting the folks that do things you like, we also have the Boombastic streaming, be Boombastic with two O's, streaming on Patreon.com. On there is where you get advanced episodes quick, uh, quick, as soon as they pop off, as soon as they're done and up, you could be listening to them, as well as a lot of bonus things. We have a film tier, which is our second tier, is film, where you also start to get all our films uh, just on an, it's our own on-demand type service for everything Boombastic. And that's very, very fantastic. So with that being said, we hope you enjoyed. Um, we support everything that Jack does, and you should too. Jack Shoulder is the man that makes everybody smolder, smoking fucking hot like lava. You know what I mean? You ever see lava come out the front of your shoes, Huck? No, not yet, but uh, I'm willing to try. That's what happens when you listen to this episode of the Boom Cast. Lava comes out the bottom of your shoes, your ears, and your nose. Like Bud Dwyer effect a little bit on the nose, but it's lava instead of uh, blood and brain matter. You know what I mean? which is always good for the kids at home watching. What's funny is our show might be raucous and wild, but we have, we've yet to kill ourselves in front of a studio audience instead of in front of public cameras. <laughs> so boom, to cast over Bud Dwyer, ladies and gentlemen, those are the election pins we need to have made up. And with that being said, we hope everybody enjoyed this episode. And we'll catch y'all on the next episode of the Boombastic Cast. Peace. Peace.